Alrighty, good evening and thank you for joining us for our second presentation in a series about Your Money, Your Life. Uh, Carl Boyd and myself are your hosts and we have the pleasure of having Sydney Himmel here to present for you. Uh, Sid is a public um, markets expert and a real estate investor who has worked as a research analyst, mm -hmm. institutional equity salesman and equity and preferred share trader. He has founded and co-founded numerous companies, which he successfully took public, grew to market capitalizations in the hundreds of millions and successfully exited. Sydney is an active investor in the public markets with an investment approach that combines fundamental research, macro approaches, and technical analysis. He has written on finance, taxation, and investing, including publishing research on fixed income markets for a national Canadian investment bank. He has also taught courses on taxation and finance at the University of Toronto. Sydney holds degrees in chemistry, commerce, and finance, and also worked as a chartered accountant earlier in his, earlier in his career. Sydney continues to grow his bank of knowledge by taking courses, reading, and constantly evolving into a greater version of himself. And if I may say, we can all stand to benefit from our exposure to Sid. This evening's presentation will have a goal of making it through a slide presentation that Sid has created and adjusted since our first presentation, and any and all questions are welcome. Please post them in the Q&A section of the chat, and we will get to them as soon as we can. On that note, Sid, the stage is all yours. Thanks, Ashley. How are you, how are you guys? Good, good. Long time no talk. Yeah, at least one day. <laughs> okay, uh, is the presentation up? I don't... I don't uh... Yep, I can yeah. throw it up now. Okay. Okay, and uh, we'll, we'll, we we'll, we'll try to dialogue this time. We'll take off from where we were last time. Uh, purpose was to be talking about interest rates and where they're going, uh, more specifically finance and investing and saving, and more specifically to be real about the stuff. And we're not pitching any products, we're just pitching ideas. Uh, and we're gonna try to be one of the most real presentations or a series of presentations on social media on these subjects. We'll see what happens. So um, we're talking about interest rates, but also markets and a bit about real estate. And we'll see how long this session goes. Usually these go on for a while. We're going to review some of what we talked about last time, but also going to look mm -hmm. at some of the stuff in a historical and a bigger context and then go into the specifics around uh, exactly what budgeting is, exactly what spreadsheets are good and not good for, exactly how to think about risk. Well, start to talk about how to think about risk, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit different. We'll see, it. We'll see how it goes. Now, interest rates. I wrote here the truth about Western interest rates. Western means like the United States, Canada, Europe, the Commonwealth, and et cetera. And... Uh, it all relates, it substantially relates to uh, government debts right now. Now, if there was no government and if money was basically Bitcoin or gold or, or rice or something like that, we wouldn't be worrying about government debts. Interest rates would reflect uh, basically what's happening in the productive economy. The more the economy was growing, the higher rates would be. And the less the economy was growing, the lower rates would be, which... A lot of people would find counterintuitive because government's so big right now that government's actually reversed it. But in a real economy where there's no government interference and no pretend money, there's just natural money. Uh, when you're profitable, you're earning a lot of money, you can borrow at a high rate. You can give people returns at a high rate, so rates are high. It's a good thing. If nothing is happening and if assets aren't earning anything and if people aren't getting wealthier materially or otherwise, Interest rates are low. 
Uh, and it's funny how right now people are hoping interest rates go lower so things can get better. So it's counterintuitive, but over the first part of this presentation today, and maybe over time, I think that should become really obvious emotionally and psychologically. If it's not, it actually makes saving and investing rationally almost impossible because I think, I think that's the reality of what's going on. Then you have to add inflation on top of that, and, and that's where it gets complicated. So let's look at debt just momentarily. Uh, Stephanie Kelton is a well-known university economist. I put that as a one-word university economist because I'm not sure if university economists really are true economists, i.e. scientific people about money. Uh, but she's been saying for years, it's called modern monetary theory, MMT, sounds like empty, modern monetary theory, that debts, government debts don't matter. Well, that's an interesting thought, and we'll talk about it. But she thinks government debts are relevant. We, quote, owe it to ourselves, so who cares? It's just an accounting measure. Interesting theory. She doesn't think inflation is caused by deficits, and she thinks government can spend pretty much whatever they want. It makes no difference to the real economy. In fact, it's a good thing if they do. Now, Rand Paul, who's, uh, I think he's an ophthalmologist by trade. He's a libertarian senator, one of the 100 senators in the United States. He's at the exact opposite end of the, of, the, uh, of the that perspective. He thinks government debts are horrendous and it's destroying America. So there's two different perspectives. Now, related to government debts, I have another chart on that first slide. And what that chart says is the following. In the United States, 1% of the population have got assets worth $37 trillion dollars. Uh, the next 19%, their assets are 70 trillion. So the, uh, I think it's 70, yeah. So the top 20% of the United States owns about 70% of all the assets, 70% of all the wealth. And the rest of the uh, citizens uh, in the United States sort of split what's there. The bottom 40% are, are essentially broke. I would say that Governments being the source of paper money in the economy and government deficits, it's what's caused that completely and totally unequal distribution of income. If we're almost at the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the population have 80% of the wealth. And I would suggest if things continue the way they're going with the U.S. government and deficits, it's going to go there and even get worse. At some point, though, there'll be such a realization of what's happening and why it's happening, that it'll stop and it'll self-correct. So those are the significant issues around really interest, interest rates and investing. That's the background of what's going on because government interference in the economy has gotten so big. I have a question, Sid. Yes, sir. How can someone like Stephanie and Rand be complete polar opposites on, on something that historically has been ongoing for so long? Well, um, I'll be, I'll be, <laughs> look at the Middle East. Uh, some people think Hamas are evil monsters. Some people think Israel is in that category and it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. You look at the Ukraine, Russia, and America. Some people think America is the savior of the Ukraine. Ukraine's a wonderful place. Some people think the exact opposite, that in fact, cause of what's happening here is the United States and Russia is just protecting themselves. 
And so I, well, I guess I, I, th I understand what you're saying psychologically, but aren't we talking about basically a, a mathematical equation versus, you know, a human being, uh, you know, reading, reading articles about that war, um, not knowing who to, you know, not knowing who's telling what and, and being confused versus mathematics. Like, isn't this a mathematic, a mathematical equation? No, it's not. It's not at all. The mathematics is the language, I would say. But the truth of what's going on is uh, human existence. I'll give you a couple of simple examples. Mathematically, a glass of water is about free, or let's say it costs you half a cent. And uh, uh, an ounce of gold is $2,000. And a Bitcoin is whatever it is today, $40,000 or $50,000. If you're, so that's, that's the price. That's the mathematics. That's the ratio, right? I can exchange, I can exchange one ounce of gold for a lot of water and I can exchange, etc. Now, what's more valuable, water or gold? Gold. So and if you are thirsty and you have, and you're dehydrating, you're about to die because you haven't got water. I'm going to drink gold. You're going to drink gold. Yeah. So water is more valuable because we need it to survive. Right. right. Now let's look at insurance. The most you can get, the average person can get on his life, life insurance is, let's say, uh, let's say the average person's life insurance policy who's four years old is probably, I don't know, $1 million or $1.5 million. Is that what his life is worth? $1.5 million. So no. If you, you know, if, if your wife was at threat of, of dying because she was ill and you had the money, would you spend more than 1.5 to save your life? You probably would. The insurance company might not, but you would. So you see, what I'm saying is the mathematics has got nothing to do with the human reality. So Stephanie Kelton, when she's looking at the deficit, um, what she's saying is that, well, there's got to be equality if the government spends money and make it more equal and wealthy people are going to work anyway. They don't care. And uh, poor people are going to benefit. That's Stephanie Kelton. And here's what Rand Paul says. Rand Paul says, when the government blows a lot of money, you motivate people to become lazy, lethargic, self-hating, arrogant, have no skills. You pay them to do nothing and they become less than human. Mm-hmm. And you also demotivate motivated people. You're actually stealing from them. So there's, that's why they come from different perspectives. One person looks at what is the nature of a human being in one way, which is that basically people are self-determining. The world is basically a fair place and you can create your own wealth by your definition. That's Rand Paul. Stephanie Kelton, she's come from a place where the world is scary. It's frightening. People are nasty. You can't trust them. The government has to protect the average weak person and just take from the rich and give it to the poor. The rich don't deserve what they have. Does, does that make sense? Or do you think it does. crazy? No, yeah, it does, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get the, I get the fun, fundamental difference. I, I guess I, I was more thinking that this is just a mathematical equation at the end of the day. If uh, you, if you're printing money, and running a deficit, who pays for that? You have to sell that. Someone has to uh, has to buy that, 
And if you keep doing that enough, you would think that you'd lose your, your credit rating and someone would have to pay more for your bond to finance it. Well, uh, can I respond to that? Yep. Okay. From an engineering perspective, all the food that all the people in North America might want to eat and all the clothing they might want to wear and all the homes they might want to live in, you can produce that with uh, robots, robotics, computers, automation. You only need about one person in a hundred to actually work to build those machines and control them. In theory, from an engineering perspective, I shouldn't say in theory, in fact, from an engineering perspective, 99% of the people in North America could do absolutely nothing and have a good material life. Machines can produce all of it. To give you one example, going back as far as 1992, when I was uh, an institutional salesman and I was visiting forest, uh, paper mills in northern Ontario, I'd walk into a massive mill on a two-acre area making enough paper for Canada, newspaper, newsprint, etc. There were three people in the entire plant. Everything was completely automated. These days, it takes very few people to produce stuff. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, Stephanie Kelton says, well, machines can produce everything. Everybody should have stuff. So if they haven't got stuff, if they haven't got a, a job, which isn't required anyway, just give them the money. You see, there doesn't need to be debt in her mind because you just allocate stuff. Now, now there used to be a term for that. It was called communism. <laughs> no? now, this, now, in her mind, I think she's got the perfect communist system. Except in the old days, when you had a communist system, people had to work and then it all got distributed equally. Right now, with robotics, AI, etc., it's been true for 40 years already, by the way. Um, nobody has to work. You can just split everything equally, and that's good. That's how Stephanie Kelton sees the world. So, And by the way, I'm, I'm addressing your question. You don't need to have debt. You can just have an accounting machine. Everybody shows up with coupons. Here's a coupon for your house. Here's a coupon for your holiday. Here's a coupon for your food. No debt. You just allocate stuff. It's an allocation machine. You don't need to have debts. The way the government does it, they pretend they're borrowing. They pretend they're going to pay you back. So in theory, Stephanie Kelton is saying, well, just, just have coupons. And there's no debt required. That's, that's why, you see, the truth is an absolute hardcore reality in a sense, she's right. You don't need to have debts to distribute, for the government to distribute stuff. To put it differently, the government can just take it from the machines and give it to people. Now, the question is, how about the 1% of the people who actually know how the machines are programmed, who can't program them, who can't fix them, who designed them, who have to control it, and are pretty bright and pretty trained? Uh, how much are they going to want? All of it? <laughs> None of it? That's where she's coming from. But the reality is from an engineering perspective, I'm talking input in, input out, uh, doesn't need to be any debt. By the way, how much debt is produced when we breathe fresh air? Who's paying for all that fresh air, basically? Who's paying for all the water? Okay, there's pollution or whatever. That's a separate subject, but it's pretty small. Truth is all that stuff is free. Sunlight. How much debt are we incurring over to get sunlight? Uh, none right? So that's how she's looking at everything. It's all free. That's how she sees it. And in a okay. sense, she's right. So she, what she's saying is, therefore, debt is fake. 
Okay. Now, Rand Paul is looking at it differently. He's saying the following. He's saying if you give everybody everything they want for nothing, they're going to become crazy. They're all going to want more and more and more. Life will become meaningless. Uh, they'll look at themselves and say, why am I even here? I see signs of that in the modern society all over the place, probably. And yep. uh, he's saying pe people will lose their spiritual self-respect. They'll go crazy. Society will become bestial. It will be living in a jungle of crazy people. Now, when Rand Paul talks about that, he doesn't get into it that depth. And when Stephanie Kelton talks about it, she doesn't get into it that depth. But what I'm trying to say is I think that's what's actually going on in their, in their, in their subconscious, whether or not they're aware of it or not. Yeah, that makes sense. Does that really make sense? Or if you just, it sort of makes sense. Or what do you think? Well, it's a perspective thing. I, I get it. Um, I, I think I, it resonates more with like the Rand Paul uh, perspective resonates more with me from what I've seen with, with maybe some friends and family that, uh, you know, I won't elaborate, but uh, <laughs> they have no purpose, right? There's no purpose. Yeah. I mean, if you're born in a wealthy family and your parents give you everything you want, you get as far as JK, then you quit. You become a certain kind of person. And uh, that's what people who talk about saving and investing, and we all know who a lot of them are, Warren Buffett's an easy name to use, Charlie Munger before he passed away, other people, Jeremy Grantham, uh, Jim Grant. They don't talk about this stuff. It's sort of assumed, right? But we'll be talking about it because we're trying to be helpful in terms of helping people accumulate in a nice, happy way the kind of wealth and capital they want. But I've, uh, I've felt for some time now, like most of my life, that if you haven't got these other core basics in the back of your mind, it'll be very hard to figure out what this all means, what the arithmetic actually means. Yeah. All right, let's go through it. Okay. Now, that's a chart that looks at the increase in labor productivity. How much, how much goods and services one man hour can produce, one woman hour can produce, one person hour can produce, and the, and the increase in, in income per, per, per hour per person since 19, uh, 1940. So from 1940 to 1980, as productivity increased, as people were able to, to produce more per person, their income increased. Starting in 1980, productivity went up by 164% in total up until around 2021. And... Um, uh, income went up by 114%. So while productivity went up by 65%, income went up for the labor by 14%. Now at the same time, by the way, the wealth distribution has gone massively towards the super, super rich and away from the middle class and certainly away from, what the, from people who are earning less income. Those two charts are the same way of saying the same thing. Relatively speaking, most people are getting poorer and some people are getting way richer. Now that's it. And the people that are getting poorer are working harder. 
ones who are are working harder because there's a lot of people carrying two and three jobs used to be able to do on one job so understanding interest rates and how they're set has a lot to do with this starting in 1980 that's when interest rates peaked at 16 percent and that's when the government and other things were going on because the government can't totally control it but they're part of it other stuff went on uh, not such nice stuff, by the way, internationally. Interest rates started to go down. And interest rates went down from 16, 17% in 1980 to zero and negative in 2020. Now, people think, gee, when rates go down, it'll be a lot better, right, Carl? Right. I can afford my mortgage, won't cost me that much. But look what's happened statistically with per capita income and income inequality. As rates went down from 80 to 2020 to zero and then negative, things got worse and worse. Now the question is, does that make sense? Does it make sense to you? I think I'd like you to explain it, the why. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it then. Okay, we'll explain it, but um, I'll say this. Uh, it's, it's, we'll do it bit by bit, and, and what we should make sure I, is that I think what you're saying is that productivity fell along with interest rates falling. No. Uh, well, product, uh, productivity actually went up. But here's what happened. Here's what happened uh, over that period. Um, productivity went up from 1980 up until around 1994, 95. After that, you're right. North American productivity fell uh, a hell of a lot. So you're right. In the second half, it fell. And that had a lot to do with what was going on. Um, so that did happen. Yet more wealth was being created. And some people captured all that wealth. And mm -hmm. here's what happened. Because productivity was falling, the real interest rate was going down. There's no question about it. And that's true whether there's fake money government money, fiat money or not. So Right, and that and that's why rates go down when you have a recession. That's correct. So rates And then if the down. if the economy picks up and people are producing things and wealth is being created uh rates are going up. Yeah. Because, because people kind of think yeah. about it simply. Your time is more valuable because you're actually producing more stuff. Interest is the value of time, right? You know. Uh, if you borrow money, you can get a higher return. You can pay more interest. Uh, banks know you're making more. They want you to borrow, but but there's competition for borrowing, so rates go up. Because the interest rate is the debt side reflecting the income on assets. So if the asset level goes up, the interest rate goes up. That's right. Now, something else happened after 1995. As rates were going down, uh, I'll tell you why they were going down. They were going down because... Uh, a huge amount of money was being created by the government as debt. The government was telling banks that banks they had to lend money to people. They were forced to lend money to all kinds of people because governments became basically branch banks became branches of the governments in, in the Western world. And um, on top of that, something happened which allowed inflation to disappear. Consumer price inflation, goods, services, food, clothing, cheap imports from China. 
Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that. Because Chinese income per capita was like $200 a year. People were making $20,000 a year here. So we were importing stuff cheap from Africa, from Asia, and that was keeping the price of items down. There still was inflation of 1% or 2%, but it was pretty low. Now the question is, well, if there's all this money going around, and if people are complaining, you know, you know who they are, but a bunch of money's going to cost inflation. Recently, it has cost consumer inflation, but for a whole bunch of years, it didn't. So we know why there wasn't consumer price inflation, because we were, I don't want to say ripping anybody else off, because we were actually helping them grow as well. But we were buying stuff at a cost which was a 20th or a 30th of what it would have cost if we made it here. We're getting it from China, Vietnam, Thailand, you name it. Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and Africa, cheap resources, and the Middle East, by the way, cheap oil. So that kept consumer price index down. Now, at, at the same time, something else was going on, and I knew it at the time. There was massive inflation going on in North America, but it was not in consumer products. You know where that inflation was? Where was it? I, no. I don't know. Stocks, bonds and real estate. So if you own stocks, bonds, or real estate, if you were an entrepreneur and you were raising money through stocks or bonds, or if you invested in real estate, that's where the inflation was going on. That's where the prices were going up. And they went up and up and up. And that's why people who had assets or people who at the time were able to borrow at low interest rates, so to speak, low nominal interest rates and buy assets those people got super rich. And that's why the super, super rich right now and the super rich have 80% of the wealth. That's why there's the income inequality because mm. rates were artificially pushed down. It didn't cause consumer price inflation. Stephanie Kelton misses all that because we were importing stuff cheaper and cheaper and cheaper from Asia. So prices would have gone up by 10% a year. But we were importing stuff 90% cheaper, 95% cheaper than it would have cost in North America. And that's what was going on. So you had an imperial empire in America, in Europe, importing cheap goods from the colonies in Asia and Africa. They weren't called colonies at the time. We were helping them out, right? It was called global international trade. It was called, we're all good guys here, we're all good coming part of the wealthy world, right? That's what was happening. You were probably born, I don't know, 90 sometime? 83. 83, okay. You were born just before this start. Actually, you were born after this started. And your wife was born after this started. And without even knowing it, you were living through an era where there was massive inflation on assets. We were benefiting from low prices because we were importing cheap stuff from the rest of the world. Rich people were getting richer and richer and, and the, everybody else was getting poorer and poorer. Now, one thing I will say about America versus anywhere else is that in terms of having a meritocracy, it's the least non-meritocratic place in the world. I'll say that again. It's not perfectly meritocratic. It's not a perfect meritocracy because we do take a lot of stuff from people who create it and give it to people who don't. But there's enough meritocracy that if you're smart and you want to get ahead and you, you want to join that top 20%, you can do it. 
You can't do that in Russia. You, you can't do that in Europe. You can't do that in England. You can't do that in Africa, in my opinion. You can't do that in Asia. Why not England? Oh, England's because because Britain and Europe are socially controlled. If you're not part of a certain class, if your accent's not of a certain type, if you haven't gone to a certain school, you're not going to get ahead very quickly. And if you look at the patents, which have been which have been put together, uh, is probably by now 15 million patents, I think. Way over half of them come from the United States. People so essentially, what you're saying is the United States is still the freest country on the planet. It's the least unfree country. I wouldn't call it free, but it's the least unfree country. What does that so mean, Sid? Don't... Can you explain that? Sure. If, uh, you know, uh, Jack Ma, I think, is, is, uh, is the guy that um, owned Alibaba, right? When he started to annoy the Chinese government, he disappeared. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. That was a couple right. years ago. And in Russia, if you annoy the government, you, you get disappeared, right? In Europe, you don't need to annoy the government. If, if you don't come from the right class, the old aristocracy, nobody pays much attention to you. It's like you don't exist. It's like you don't exist. That's a pretty blunt statement, eh? So, Sid, how come, how come you don't live in the United States then? Well, uh, I was born here approximately 70 meters from where I'm sitting. <laughs> I've wow. lived around. I'm on Yorkville Avenue here in my office. I was born across the street. I went to school at Euron Street and over there and Jesse Ketchum and Jarvis and whatever. Worked here all my life. And I sort of like it. And my wife likes it here. She's originally from London. Then she went to northern Quebec when she was a kid. And uh, she came to Toronto. We met, and she likes it here. So it's London, enough. London, Ontario, or London, England. London, London, Romford, London, England. Romford in England. That's okay, where, that's where she's from. So uh, you know, Canada is okay. I mean, Canada basically. Good old me being blunt here. Canada is basically part of the United States. You know, we're like upstate New York. So it, it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty. Pretty similar. Now, there's something we have in Canada that I think the large cities and state don't have it anymore as much. We're still very safe here. We're still benefiting from uh, the Protestant English culture of the 1940s and 50s and 60s that's carried forward. It's reasonably safe here. Not as safe as it used to be before COVID, but it's safe. You're walking around, you know, a lot of cities in, in the United States, it ain't safe unless you have your security guards with you. And by the way, the super rich, I would, I would hazard a guess that the average super rich person in the United States, like ultra rich, has at least, I would guess, 50 security guards. And, uh, you know, Canada, you could be a multi-billionaire. You probably don't need, you might need one or two, but you don't need 50. So Yeah, I've seen, I've seen Eric Sprott walking down the street with just by himself in his briefcase many times. Right. So, you know, in the United States, uh, that's a different story. So, the, so we have cultural advantages here that we don't, ha that we, uh, don't have in the States. But come to think of it, you know, most, most of the, um, when, I, when I put companies together, uh, most of them were financed out of Canada and the United States. My capital came considerably out of the United States, but also Europe. 
as well as Canada. So, you know, my involvement has been substantially uh, with the United States. So I, mm. I, I've been down there. I've got a, a, a social insurance number, a SIN, SIN number, as well as a social security number in Canada. Uh, you know, I pay tax in the U.S. and multiple states. So, you know, I've, I've had a fair bit of involvement. Okay, we'll sort of continue. Uh, what we've done so far is we're starting to look at the big picture. The big picture being, number one, if the government wasn't there taking half of everyone's money or taking half of the money and giving it to everybody else, uh, interest rates would be completely different. They'd be a lot lower, generally speaking, and they'd be going up when times are good and down when times are bad. When the government is using what we call debt, we call it debt, um, which, is, which it really isn't, sort of, but we're going to get into that later. Some of it's debt, but a lot of the money, Carl, that uh, a lot of the national debt is the government borrowing it from itself and then spending it. The government owes it to itself. 25% of the 34, million, 34 trillion, can you imagine trillion? <laughs> 25% of the 34 trillion of U.S. government debt is owed to the federal bank of the United States. The federal bank is without a doubt a U.S. government division. So while the government says we owe, we the Treasury owe Jerome Powell, the Fed, $8 trillion or $7 trillion, it's never going to get paid. That's, that, there's very few things we know for sure. We know we were born. We know we're going to die. And we know that, the, that, that that's never going to get paid. That we know. It may, may get forgiven, or if it does get paid, it'll get paid in dollars, which are worthless. You know, that, that we know for sure, right? So if you think about it, a lot of that debt is, in fact, owed to the federal, to, to itself. And by the way, you know how the government basically, of their third, United, U.S. government, Canada's in the same situation. If you look at the U.S. government of the $34 trillion of debt, um, they don't have to borrow any money from anybody. They can borrow it all from the Fed if they want, Right? They go to the Fed, give me $34 trillion, or sorry, look, they say, give me $27 trillion. They get it from the Fed, they pay all the debts off, and they're done, right? Now, there's bigger things going on behind, uh, behind the scenes, which we have to get into, which if that happened, it'd be bad, really bad. <laughs> but we're Sid, not you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned earlier that the, Stephanie Kelton yeah. thinks that the, you know, we owe it to ourselves, just keep printing money. It's no big deal. And how unrealistic that actually is in theory. But then you've just made a comment about how the debt will probably never be paid off anyway. So how is she incorrect in what she's saying? If the debt's just kind of never ending and nobody really cares to pay it back, it's all just imaginary. Well, here's where she's wrong. You know, um, if you go out uh, for dinner and have a drink, you can probably uh, drive home and you're okay. So she'd mm-hmm. say you can drink at dinner and drive home and you're okay. You might have two drinks and you could drive home and you're okay. I might have three drinks and I'd be fine, right? So I, I could drive home and I'd be okay. So Stephanie Kelp would say, drink whatever you want. Right. But you know what? I'll drink 50 drinks and then I'll drive home and I'll be okay. <laughs> You'll drive I'll somewhere. Die. I'll die. <laughs> I'll sm- if I'm lucky, I'll smash into the wall in the parking lot, right? <laughs> 
and I'll break my nose. That's where she's wrong. Now, let me let me share with you where that, you with me so far with the metaphor? Yes, okay, 100%. So now I'll take you right to, up to the end game. The U.S. government goes to Fed, borrows 20, takes, borrows from themselves, 27 trillion, pays it all off. All of a sudden, Russia and China, everybody else, now they say to everybody else, do you not see that the U.S. currency is valueless? The government is going to print infinite money. Now what will happen is the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, I forget what S stands for. What does that stand for? I'm sure it's a really long country. I can't remember. Uh, South Africa. Sorry. I'm going to be bad. They won't like me in South Africa. Those countries will, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to start jumping off the currency even faster. The U.S. dollar will go to zero. Mm-hmm. That's what will happen. The U.S. dollar will go to zero. As long as the United States currency is strong, everything she's saying is right. Now, she's never thought about that. She's, oh, no, the U.S. dollar is not going to go to zero. The U.S. U.S. is this, you know. Well, she's got no answer for that. You see, she studies arithmetic or applied second-year calculus, so she knows a bit of linear algebra and calculus and some statistics. God bless her. She knows some left-wing post-1945 socialized so-called economics. So she knows that pretty well. She's written some papers. They're okay. Just like the Fed writes these papers, they're okay. They're they're all wrong, but they're okay. But she hasn't studied history. She doesn't know why the Roman Empire ended. She doesn't know why the Greek Empire ended. She doesn't know why the Persian Empire ended. She doesn't know why the Roman Catholic Church ended, why the Holy Roman Empire ended, why the British Empire ended, why the Russian Empire ended. I could go on and on. She doesn't know because she's never studied it. And she's never made the connection. And I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm <laughs> assuming she's not producing, you know, propaganda for somebody. I'm assuming yep. that she's being rigorous, right? Now, when you study history, when you study empires and why empires end, now you start to understand economics. And the same thing applies in your personal life. Except with your personal life, it's about understanding your society, understanding your own internal psychology, understanding your family. You just take society and break it down to you and your family or you and yourself, mm-hmm. you know, you, myself, and I. If you don't get this stuff, here, listening about interest rates, real estate, stocks, diversifying, not diversifying, all the stuff Warren Buffett's talking about, Robert Kiyosaki, Jeremy Grantham, you name it, Jim Grant. None of it will make any sense. It'll, it'll maybe make sense. When you think about it, it won't make sense. But when you start to think about it, like pretend the whole world is just you, your spouse, your two kids, your cousins, and that's it. And pretend you're the economy and you start to figure out what's going on. Mm. Does that help so far? Yeah, that's yeah. pretty insightful. That, that's why Stephanie Kelton, I think, is a nice person, but very confused. She didn't start far enough back with her research. Well, not too many people study history, psychology, economics, science. Uh, George Soros does. He's a pretty smart guy. Um, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, those guys do. Uh, the really great people who most of us have heard of, uh, guys like Ed Thorpe, uh, Jim Simmons, probably some people haven't heard of him, but we'll, we'll talk a bit about him. Those guys actually have thought it through. 
thought of that. <laughs> but they don't show up on CNN very often or on, you know, social media. Said we have a question. You mentioned the American dollar and someone has asked if you foresee the American dollar collapsing at any point. And do you have any insight into the African currency and how it could play a role against the American dollar? Okay. Um, based on my study of history and based on my prejudicial view on the United States, which is very positive, actually, very positive, but based on my study of history, I would say two things. It would take, it'll take a long time before the U.S. Um, falls apart. And my analogy is the Roman Empire the, uh, and the Roman Republic. Rome as a culture, as, a, as an idea, as a place, started around 200 B.C. It really started to fall apart with the, with the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar, I think, around 30 B.C. But between 30 B.C., the time of Christ, and the end of the Roman Empire was 500 years. That empire was so strong and the culture was so strong that even though it was slowly dissipating, it takes a long time. I think the United States is in the same position. I'll give you England as an analogy. In England really started as a power, I would say, in 1450 during the Reformation. They got really big under Henry VIII in 1550 and Elizabeth I a bit later. The English Empire didn't really end until 1945. The pound went to zero, relatively speaking. The pound lost 99% of its value over that period of time. But it took 400 years because there's nobody out there to beat them, right? I think America's in the same situation. Now, I also, there's something else that's, that I think will happen. At the present time, I think America, as are most human beings, are self-correcting. When it gets really bad, America, so far, tends to self-correct. Can I give you a couple of examples? Please. In the 1860s, the time of the Civil War, America was in worse shape in terms of a lack of civility, a lack of respect, and the parties hating each other than they are today. It was worse. It did cause them to kill 10% of their fellow citizens. That was a pretty bad time. They made it through the Civil War. In the 1890s, America was in worse shape culturally in terms of a lack of civility and potential civil war and a potential communist revolution and a potential corporatist fascist revolution in the 1890s in the worst situation that is right now. Three American presidents were assassinated in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. And that's not because everybody was happy. Just think of it. There's not too many countries where three heads of state are assassinated in 50 years. It was pretty tough back then, right? Yeah. There were good times and bad times, right? Theodore Roosevelt, there was an attempted assassination on him. He carried a bullet in his chest for the rest of his life. They, they couldn't take it out. He, he was lucky. He had a speech, which was like wrapped up in, in his chest. It was like a half an inch thick. And then he had, he had something. He had a book. I think the Bible is so <laughs> lucky enough the bullet didn't get in very far. He was okay. Uh, there was an attempted assassination of, uh, in the 1830s of Andrew Jackson, my favorite U.S. president. So, so while they were good times, they were also bad times. And I would say, even though it, there's a lack of civility right now in the U.S., and there's a lot of problems, it's been a lot worse in the past. In the 1930s, the fascists and the communists almost took over the 1930s in America. We don't know what this 
First of all, a lot of people don't study history anymore. When I was a kid, they did. But even that history wasn't very honest about what was going on. So I think America's got a long way to go. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Africa's an interesting place. And I think Africa's got a chance to, uh, you know, develop a lot of strength. They certainly have all the resources they could possibly need, a lot more than China. Yeah. And, you know, China can change as well. But what America does have is a is a pretty free, or relatively speaking, a, a, a truly liberal society. I don't mean liberal the way it's used in the modern world. The liberals in this world are illiberal. They're actually undemocratic. The true liberals are what the Republican Party used to be, but I'm not sure if they're even liberals anymore. Right now to call them, what you have to call them is libertarians, right? But libertarians are a bit too extreme, right? So I would say America is still has those ideas that the founding mothers and fathers of the country uh, had back in the uh, eight, in the uh, 18th century. So that's sort of my answer to that uh, that question. Thanks for that question. And, and Ash, where did that come in from? Uh, that's on, that's live here. It was, um, I've marked it as answered now. His name was Rodney. I think okay. it was, or Peter Dennis asked that. Yeah, Thanks. there's no Thanks doubt. The America, I should say no doubt. I think America's got a lot of uh, a long, long, long way to go. But there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen internationally over the next 20 years, like some people can't imagine. When 2020 showed up, uh, my prediction at the time was that uh, the inner cities would not go back to what they were before. People thought I was crazy. Well, I think it sort of happened. I also predicted that wars were going to break out very quickly, and they have broken out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, these things are going to expand. They're going to expand because it's going to be part of the self-correcting international mechanism, which has to happen in order to keep things liberal in, in the classic sense of the term. Um, and we're actually going through, uh, we're, we're very soon going to be going through the corrective period. We're still going through the problems we, we've had before. But the fact that the interest rates jumped up is actually part of the correction and the fixing up that, that is sort of happening. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Now, one thing I'm trying to do, Ashley and uh, Carl, is keep this completely logical and simple. What I mean is I don't want to get carried away in a bunch of theory. No one knows what we're talking about. I want to keep yep. it down to earth and make sense personally bit by bit. So if it's not making sense to you guys personally, then you got to stop me and ask questions. This has to make common sense. Yeah. There's nothing difficult about economics if you can think that, you know, you get up in the morning, what do you do? You brush your teeth. Should you brush it? Should not brush it? You know, when someone asks you how you are, well, should they ask you? Shouldn't they ask you? You have to work. You don't have to work. Should you work? Should you? I mean, it's just common sense mm -hmm. ultimately. And if you don't have that kind of common sense, Nothing we're talking about in terms of interest rates or real estate, I think, is going to make any sense. Is real estate too expensive, not too expensive? Here, I'll give you the common sense behind real estate. Um, a house right now, I'll give you something that makes real common sense. As the economy improves, and it has improved since 1945, and as technology improves, in, in 1900, it cost, how much do you think it cost to make a car in 1900? Um, the cost, 200. I'm gonna say, yeah, I was actually going to say 200. 
It cost $200,000 in 1900 to make a car in 1900 currency. In today's currency, it costs about $15 million to make a car. So you're right. It was 200000 on that currency. You're absolutely right. Now, by 1950, the cost of a car was down to $1,000, right? So don't you think right now a car should cost about 50 bucks? How yeah. Come, how come it goes down from 200000 to 2000 and now it's back up to 60000 or 50000 You know what that's called? Inflation. Yeah. Government debt. The real cost of a car has essentially gone to zero. The real cost of a car has gone to zero. Machines make, can make it for like free. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you meet almost nobody. But because of inflation and because of governments giving money away and taking it from other people, whatever, you can see how the cost of a car has gone up. The same thing applies to housing, right? A lot of young people under the age of 30 can't afford a house. They've given up. A friggin' cell phone, well, heck, a phone used to cost eight bucks. How come this phone costs two Gs? And maybe I, I, I shouldn't buy this phone, but 1500 then, you know, like it, this phone should cost 80 cents. There's something going on. That's why rates are probably going to be going up after they stop going down. So there's a lot of, a lot of things happening. So the common sense of it, when we talk about common sense, is I wanted to make the following point. If the economy is growing and if technology is working, everything should cost less and less all the time. Because if everything is working and if technology is working, we should all be getting richer, which means we should have the same income and things should be cheaper. Does that make common sense? Yep. Yes. What doesn't make sense is how come most people are poorer and things are costing them more. That's the part that doesn't make sense. And that's what we're sort of talking about. That relates to saving. And that relates to interest rates. And that relates to is real estate a good investment or not. And that relates to our stocks and bonds, good investments or not. Let me give you another common sense concept, okay? Can I do that? Yeah. Ashley? Ashley's my test case. <laughs> yes, please. All right. Uh, we'll look at a chart in, in a bit that shows the value of the dollar has gone from like $1 to what a cent in the last 80 years. You know, newspapers used to cost two pennies. Now a newspaper, if you bought it, it's going to cost you six bucks. A phone, when it came out and it was new, cost a dollar. Now a phone is $2,000. So cash money, these dollars we're talking about is cash money, right? It's government debt, government accounting things, like Stephanie Kelton calls it. Those things have gone down in, down in value. You need way more of them in order to buy something, right? So how do people behave when cash is worth less and less and less? They do need to hold on to something if they're smart. They need, you got to save in some form, right? So what do they do? Well, smart people and people who figured it out, and people who are disciplined, they buy, they do something. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase. They buy a house. They buy gold. They build a business. They buy stocks. You know what those stocks and the house and the gold has become? I'll tell you what it's become. The stocks and the gold and the house have become more than stocks, gold, and houses. Those things have become money. Mm-hmm. And money. Cash, security. It's be- no, money. 
when you buy a house for a million bucks, if you ever can get it, 50,000 of it's the house, 950,000 of it is money. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's 950 is because the cash money is getting so valueless so quickly because of what the governments are doing. That's why the house is a million bucks. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's a commodity. It's it's money. Money. It's 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 actually you see the commodity portion of a house is 50,000. The money part of it is 950. You see houses should only cost 10 $3,000. A house costs like 10,000 in 1945. Given the fact there's more technology and you can produce plastic houses, you can do all kinds of stuff, you know, you can make artificial cement, you can take sand and, you know, redo it. And it should be cheap as anything. I understand you like to diversify, but if you could only buy one of those three, what would you buy? A house. First house is? Houses or a house? You got to start with a home because it serves two purposes. One, it's a home. Two, it's maintaining its value. What your home is basically is a place to live that you own and it's money because it does keep up with inflation. Now, look, nothing goes straight up. So it goes up and down and up and down, but it's going up. You know, the first thing you pick is a home. So you don't think that if you look at a balance sheet, if you plug in and you, you, you have a, spread, a spreadsheet and you look at real inflation, let's use 10% as real inflation, right? 10%. And let's say someone's paying 6% on 70% of the value of the property. So they uh, let's assume they put 30% down. They're paying... Uh, six percent on 70 percent of the property and the property is a million bucks okay so they've they've got uh seven hundred thousand dollar loan at six percent interest and we know real inflation is at ten percent would you say that that's a good investment it barely cuts it but it's risky and it's risky because you got to be nuts to buy a house and have a seven hundred thousand debt against it but this is where we are though that most people have most people that are getting into the market in the last three, four years are maybe putting down 20%. Maybe. A lot of them are getting in at 5% with CMHC. But let's assume 20%. So that's what most people are doing, right? Especially it's in not, Southern Ontario. Enough. where we have- It's not enough. What the government's done is by guaranteeing these loans and by stimulating the banks to make these loans and by keeping interest rates artificially low, it's enslaved people to debt that they cannot pay off. So okay, let, let, let's talk about this. Is a good this is a good um, place to have a I you know to digress because yep. this is regardless. This is where a lot of people, a lot of people are listening to this right now are in the, are in this position, right? So it's kind of a trap. So let's walk through it. What's inflation's at What's inflation's at ten percent. Let me change the bit. I I got that. Uh, is it a is it a couple that's buying the house or is it one person? No, let's say it's a couple, and let's let's throw in one child. What's their income level? Let's say they're making uh, their, their their net income is one hundred fifty thousand bucks. Okay, um, how much can they afford to put against the principal plus the mortgage? 
I think I think if we go with what most people do, they're putting they're literally just paying their their mortgage payment. They're not putting anything extra. What is, okay, how much how much principal and how much principal are they are they paying off per year? Oh, uh, depends, right? Five year term, you're probably going to pay the bulk of that in the first two three years. So, I'd say a ratio of eighty twenty. 80% interest, 20% principal. Okay, so if you have a $700,000 mortgage in the first five years, how much, if you've got, if you can put $70,000 against that, did you say? That's a lot. At 6% on a five-year term, $700,000, you're probably, you're probably paying $150,000 to $180,000 of interest. So now if the property, and you don't know, you have to speculate what the property is going to go up in value. No, 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 no. You can't speculate on that. You can't, exactly. How much... How much principal? Okay, so you have a seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Um, mortgage. What's what's the annual total payment? What's the monthly payment? I'd have to I'd have to get a mortgage calculator. Um, well, you you guys okay. talk for a second, and no, I'll, no, I'll no. get you. You don't need a mortgage calculator. <laughs> We're gonna do it right here. So if you need a mortgage right. calculator, that's not a good sign. Right? <laughs> well, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's that's well. You, you see, that's one of the problems of the modern world. People, if people, if you can't do basic arithmetic in your head already, you're 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 at a disadvantage against nature. All right, I'm seven thousand mortgage. I got six percent interest, right. five year term. Six percent interest is uh, is forty forty two thousand a year of interest. All right. So uh, let's say you're paying therefore. Uh, Twenty-eight thousand in principal, and that assumes you're putting seventy thousand against the mortgage, right? Forty-two thousand in interest, and twenty-eight thousand in principal, right? So two hundred ten thousand in interest. Well, I'm looking at the first year. Look at the first. Oh, year. Okay, my okay. bad. Sorry. Forty-two thousand in interest, twenty-eight thousand in principal. That's seventy thousand, right? So if you're making a hundred, what, what did you say the family's making? Hundred net, one hundred fifty. Before tax? No, netting, after tax. Well, if this wonderful couple you're talking about is actually making uh, 240000 a year compared to the average family income in Canada of 60000 they're now making four times the average family income in Canada. You're already talking about someone that's rich, <laughs> by the way. Talking about someone that's rich, two hundred forty thousand is a lot of money when you look at the average family income in Canada. Let's take that person. So that person is netting one hundred fifty thousand. He's spending he or she or they or it or however they, they identify. They're spending one hundred fifty thousand. Uh, they have one fifty. They're spending uh, seventy thousand. They've got seventy thousand left. Okay, that's fine. Um, and they're paying off twenty thousand a year. On a seven hundred thousand uh, dollar loan, basically you're paying nothing. Okay, they're speculating on inflation. They're speculating on being able to resell the thing. And as rates went from two percent to five percent, <throat> this real estate can easily fall a hundred thousand dollars. Now they're just six years behind. Mathematics doesn't work. Correct. So why wouldn't you not just rent a house and, for example, 
let, let's say you have this disposable income, you got to do something with it because we know cash is trash, right? So, I mean, we can, you can apply anything, but if real inflation is 10%, you need to get a yield over 10% or you're falling behind. Here's where you start. Number one, you can't get divorced. Sorry, number one is, sorry, or number zero. Number one is you've got to, you got to be married. You have to have a partner because one person, a lone wolf cannot, could never survive in the jungle, could never survive over the history of person kind for the last five or 6,000 years and sure can't make it today. So number one is you have to, you have to have a spouse. Then number two is you got to, if you, it's good to have children actually. So you got to think about that. Number three is don't get divorced because once you're divorced, you're, you're financially finished. You're done. Divorced is not a good thing. So you start off with that. Do you have parents who could help you out? Because it, was it wasn't as hard in the old days, but maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, if, you, if you get a house, can you be somewhere where, you, where it's less expensive? Can you move somewhere that's less expensive? You don't necessarily have to stay where you're at. Mm -hmm. uh, can you rent out some of the house yourself? You have to, you have to, you have to, you can't, you can't be paying off 2% of your mortgage per year. <laughs> you got to pay off at least, uh, I forget the 40 year mortgage, 25 year mortgage. You got to be able to pay off, you know, 6% of your mortgage. If you have a private company and it, private companies producing cash called EBITDA, private companies you know, they, they, they go for five times their cash flow, right? That's 20% a year. They want their money back in five years. If you're paying off your debt in 40 years, there, there's something seriously wrong. Well, but yeah, but Sid, there is something seriously wrong. And this is what most people are doing, Sid. Right. That's why I brought it up as, as a, an exercise. Most people are the example of what I said uh, that are in home ownership, uh, that, that have bought into a home in the last five years. And so this is what they're faced with. They just had rates go down to, you know, uh, unseen levels, historic, historically speaking. And then they've seen the, the highest clip of interest rates, I think, historically speaking, unless you can correct me. So even if they locked in at the end of that cycle and they have another three years left to go, they're, they're going to be faced with probably somewhere around a 4 to 6% interest rate. Maybe, okay. um, and I'm just giving you the, the okay. average or less than average scenario, but I don't know why homeownership makes any sense. Why wouldn't that family rent a house, right? Take, take that disposable income and buy a cash flowing rental property or lend wait, that wait, money wait, on. Wait, wait, you can't buy your own property. Now you're going you're gonna to buy a cash flow property. Yeah, you could. That that is the that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why? That is beyond crazy. You can't afford your own property. Yeah. You're going to pay rent to somebody else so yeah. you can get rent from somebody else. You're working on margins and assumptions. So look, 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 like it doesn't make sense, but here's how one would analyze it, right? First of all, I'll say this. In terms of what you just described, I'm on slide five over here. I've, re I've repeated the slide. 1% of North America owns 24% of the wealth. Do you see that? 
19% of North America owns 44% of the wealth. Therefore, 20% of the people, these are like the, the, the multimillionaires, the millionaires and the billionaires, own 70% 70 of the wealth. Now you know why. Because the people you just described are doing what you just talked about, they're in the 20, 20, 20, and 20. They're the guys who've been losing. Okay, hold on. I like this exercise. It's okay that you're criticizing, critiquing, because it's good. Um, so you don't think someone renting... Now here, I'll, give, I'll, I'll break down the scenario. So instead of this, this couple, Sid, instead of then buying a house, okay, they decide, you know what? I'm going to rent a house, $3,000 all in, utilities and everything, maybe minus their cable bill uh, and internet. Okay. Where's this house? It sure ain't near me. <laughs> Where is that house? No, it's not near you. But it could be in the 905 or it could be in Surrey, okay. BC. All right. 3,000 BC. 3,000. Commuter city in uh, half an hour to an hour outside of a metropolitan area. So you're okay? going to rent and you're going to pay $36,000 a year for rent. Thir yeah. So $36,000 a year. Now, this, per this couple goes and buys a cash flowing, a real cash flowing property. Okay. All right. <laughs> I like the eyebrow. That was good. All right. So they, they buy a cash flowing property. All right. So for the, for, for the exercise, we're going to say that the property cash flows $500 net a month. Okay. Okay. So you got pins, you got principal pay down on the mortgage. They're paying your, your interest. Okay. Right. And, and you're getting 500 bucks. So all of your bills, all of your, uh, You've got, you know, you've got your vacancy rate there. You've got your, um, you've so got your fund set aside to, to and you're netting five hundred, so, so you're twenty five hundred dollars behind, or or you're netting thirty five hundred. You're grossing thirty five hundred of income. You're paying out three thousand. You're netting five hundred. Is that what you're saying? Well, you got to keep in mind that someone else is paying down this mortgage and the interest on the property. So you have a fixed cost on your living expenses. But now you own a piece of real estate. You own it. Someone else is paying the mortgage and the principal and any associated bills with it. And you're netting $500 a month. But you, So now you own a piece of real estate, but you don't live there. And you fixed your cost of living for your, for, uh, your, you know, uh, at $3,000 a month minus your cell phone bill and your food. Well, I'll tell you what happens. The interest rates go up to 8 9%. The person decides you can't pay his rent, but you can't kick him out. There's a little fire you have to fix up. You can't get insurance. And now you're in a real pickle. And the interest rates went up. The value of the property just went down. The bank's on your, on your tail. That's what happens. Okay, then let's go, let, let's go to plan C. This is, this is a fantastic um, exercise. They don't buy a house. They don't, they don't buy a house but they move and they rent. So they move out of province. Okay. Yeah. Now they don't make, they don't net $150,000 a year. They, 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 they've taken a job somewhere that pays less money. Now they're netting $90,000 and their rent and overhead is $1,800 a month. That's good. Is that a better, is that better, better lifestyle? Well, I would say the following, uh, later on, I've got some, actually, let me, let me jump ahead to this. Um, and I, I'm using it. I'm using these are good examples. These are good examples. These are what people I know around me are doing. So I have these conversations with certain people, and these are the these are the things that they they think about, right? So here's there's some other stuff we're going to talk about, but let's move into this. 
what I've got here is is uh, how you do your own financial analysis, okay? Because now we we, we got to talk about the financial analysis, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be Mr. Stockbroker or Mr. Real Estate Agent, you know, have all the answers, but but let's talk about the approach. There are pension funds and insurance companies who invest, right, in North America, right? Here's what they do. When they invest, because they have to pay off insurance policies, they have to pay a pension, they match their interest income and their future obligations. So they do a spreadsheet, and they match what they're going to have to pay with the interest that they're going to get, right? So they do the kind of thing you're talking about. They do that, okay? Now, those companies also hedge. They hedge their costs. Uh, they hedge their interests. They're sophisticated in financial markets. They hedge. So if interest rates go high, they're covered, and they don't mind paying for it in order to cover it. Okay? So if they do it, then probably the intelligent uh, investor has to do that as well. He's got to look to what happens when things go about so he doesn't lose. Okay? They also are able to use all the sophisticated financial products. So they're trained in finance, options, hedging mechanisms, swaps, etc. So they have those capabilities. Now here's the funny story. Have you heard that most pension funds don't have enough money to meet the pension obligations? You're aware of that, right? Yeah, because they're over leveraged. Well, they're over leveraged. Well, that's the definition. But how the hell do they get there? With all that sophistication, how is it that they still can't meet, meet those payments, right? Well, that's a problem. Even these sophisticated guys are having problems. Now, let me talk to you about insurance companies. Insurance companies, what they do is they, they reinsure um, what, they, what, they owe, what they owe to people if something goes bad. And then those companies reinsure it, and those companies reinsure it. So everything gets reinsured and reinsured and protected. They hedge even more, right? So what I'm saying is if we're going to do a spreadsheet, if we're going to deal with what you're talking about, I'd have to sit down with that person, with yourself, your, your wife, whatever, start to go through all these ideas and put it in the spreadsheet, and let's look at all the scenarios over the next five years and 10 years. What if you get sick? What if you lose your job? How much extra cash do you need? Right? What if price goes up, price goes down? You have to manage it all, right? What are your backup plans? Okay. Now let's look at another group of investors called hedge funds, family offices. Okay. You know what mutual funds are? There's lots of mutual funds. Well, over the years, a lot of wealthy people decided, um, a, a lot of people that ran mutual funds said, you know what? Too much trouble. I'm going to invest the money myself. And they, they set up hedge funds and, and, and family offices. Number one, hedge funds do a lot of arbitrage. What that means is hedge funds are afraid to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the gold, I'm gonna, gold market. I'm going to buy the S&P 500. I'm going to do this. They think everything's overvalued. So they hedge all their market risk. That's why they're right. called hedge funds. And you know a lot of guys who run hedge funds. You know, lots, lots of people do. Hedge funds also do what's called mean regression. They know things are always out of kilter, and they're always assuming things are going to do, do kilter. They've got these sophisticated things to deal with, with disequilibrium in the market, when things are going up and down and up and down, right? Hedge funds also make, that's a big one. You can see that in the slide, right, Ashley? They make lots of small bets. 
You see, when you buy a house or a rental property, you've got one property. Big trouble. Big trouble. Well, I mean, awesome. for me, the the exercise started when you, I asked you if you had to buy one thing, you said you buy a house. And and then I'll, I said, okay, well, let's look at what most people, a lot of people that we, we want to reach with this type of content. Look, most people do not have more than 20% to pay put on a property, right? Now, if someone gets money gifted to them or, you know, passed down from the baby boomers or whatever, then that's a different, that's a different ballgame, right? To lessen the mortgage. But most people don't. It doesn't make any sense renting and saving because inflation is working against the dollar. So you couldn't save if if it took you if it took you three years to save a hundred thousand dollars. Well, for the most part of the last two decades, the the home price was going up faster than you can save. Now that house house prices are kind of you know uh, have come down, but are just kind of stagnant right now. You still have inflation at real inflation around ten percent. So it doesn't really make any sense. Um, like I don't think I don't think the average person with their disposable income could save enough to buy a house with a forty or fifty percent equity stake already in in the property. I don't think that's realistic. Well, um, I'll throw a theory at you. Uh, after World War II, in a lot of countries around the world, like in Britain. Nobody bought a house unless they had a mortgage of at least 50%. I'm not disagreeing with you, Sid. Number one. But, okay. Number two, you're describing people who were used to the environment where between 1980 and 2020, interest rates by and large only went down and real estate only went, went up. up. Correct. So you're talking about a psychology where interest rates only went down and real estate only went up. And by the way, there's no magic formula that guarantees that. Throughout most of history, when interest rates went down, real estate went down. <laughs> when interest rates went up, real estate went up. This bizarro world of what's been happening since 1980, which has been 43 years ago, is a rarity in human history. That's why... In 2020, interest rates hit the lowest interest rate there ever was in 5,000 years. We have a record of interest rates since Sumeria, Acadia, and ancient Egypt. So we know what they were, more or less. And Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages, etc. They were never that low. So what happens is, when the world changes, when you're on the Titanic, and you have a nice dinner, and there's a nice library, and all of a sudden, FUD! And there's what's going on. And then everything's fine, don't worry about it, to keep eating. And then FUD. And all of a sudden people think, what happened? They look out, there's this there's this big piece of ice out there that's the size of the the uh, Empire State Building, right in your face. The world just changed. Right? The world just changed. So you can sit there saying, Well, let's finish dinner. And some of the people did that. But of the 2,200 people on the Atlantic, on the uh, Titanic, only 700 made it. That's what you're dealing with. Potentially. So, potentially. I, and I, I, I appreciate that. So essentially what you're saying is someone right now who in the 905, I'm not even talking 416 downtown where you are. That's a okay. big different ballgame. Uh, uh, a family of three, couple and, and one child, 
that nets $150,000 and only has 20% to put down should not buy the house. They should go and rent. Correct? Well, first of all, um, I'll tell you what. If we ran a scenario, you and I have to sit down over a couple of days. You see slide 27 where I talked about what pension funds do and hedge funds. And then on page 28, I talk about generally speaking what people do when they do sophisticated, like I'm answering your question, okay? When they do sophisticated analysis, what's your thesis? What's your risk model? What are your transaction costs? What's your portfolio model? What's your execution? What's your feed, feedback loop? What are your time frames? What's your personality? What ideas are you working with? What's your data and research and what partnerships do you have? Okay, that's just basic finance, okay? Then I've got that model. Now, let me share with you when I, when I sort of invest in stocks, what I do, okay? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you what the approach is, generally speaking, I'm giving you some examples. Then, at, you know, maybe in two weeks or subsequently, we can actually run one of these scenarios. We'll actually work through it all, right? That's what we'll do maybe at the next session. That's, if that's what people want, that's the next thing we'll do, okay? So what I do before I buy a stock is the following. I look at uh, technical aspects in terms of prices. That's on the left. I'll describe what I mean if I can do that. I look at the momentum of what's going on. Then I look at, at the fundamentals of what's happening, okay? And this is directly applicable to real estate. It's okay. So, for example, if I look at a stock, whether it's uh, Uber, whether it's BHP, uh, whether it's uh, Bald Eagle Gold, Hercules Silver, uh, whether it's uh, you know other interesting stocks, <clears throat> um, I look at I use Elliott Wave principle. I look at the long-term Elliott Wave. I score it. Medium Elliott Wave. I score it. Short-term Elliott Wave. I score it. Then I do what I call the Livermore tests. I do comparables. What's happening with real estate in other areas? How confident can I be in what's happening? Then I look at volumes and the derivatives of volumes. That's just looking at the price of what's happening. So if I was going to buy a house, I'd look at the pricing saying, is, is what's going on realistic, etc. Then I look at the macro aspect, macroeconomics, what's going on? What's the news in the market? What am I hearing? What's happening in the sector? What's the whole psychology of what's going on? Soros, uh, George Soros is, is quite a brilliant investor, right? He's got a couple of tests he used. A bit complicated to get into right now, but later we should talk about it. Then I look at the convexity. That's an idea I got from a really smart dude called Nicholas Taleb. He's probably worth a couple hundred million. He did well in 87. He did well in 2008. He's a very well-known writer and speaker. Sort of an ornery kind of guy, but he's a very bright dude. And I, I can't get into convexity right now, but then there's volumes and derivatives. So I do all that work, right? Then I look at various theoretical stuff, what they call fundamental value, relative valuation, uh, accounting, consensus on volatility, the operations, who's managing it, etc., interest rate, risk, whatever. I got to do all that stuff. So for, for us to really start to get into the situation you're describing, we're talking about running scenarios, number one, number two, which is good. That applies to everybody. But then we're talking about the individual's specific circumstances. How much stress can they handle? Can they do two jobs? Do they have potentially a job where they can double their income? Is your spouse working or not working? Is a parent helping out? You know, if you've got a family of five East Indians, 
for coming from India who are working, you know, say living in the, you know, three three people in a two bedroom home uh, apartment, saving tons of money, working hard, double jobs, they're going to save up a lot of money, right? Yeah. And they're not they're not spending eighty bucks a day on cappuccinos and Starbucks or a double, right? Or, a, mm-hmm. or whatever they call those sweet drinks with the brown stuff in it, you know. Uh, so you know, you, you got to look at the specifics. Managing interest rates. Let me comment on it right now. This sort of goes back to hardcore reality. In good times, models don't matter. Uh, that's in my first column on the left. Everything is good, right? So you're describing yep. what was happening up until the world was going to collapse because of this fake disease, COVID, right? So, sorry about that. So, you know, <laughs> models don't matter. Everything is good. Now, changing times, all right? I'll share with you when changing times were. If you were not completely asleep in 2020 and 2021, when the price of oil went to zero, which it did, when <laughs> NFTs, like the first tweet Jack Dorsey did, sold for $3 million. So if you weren't totally asleep or, or out on drugs or vaping or something. Uh, it was probably time for caution, for hedging, for diversification, for low debt, for hedging debt costs with multiple terms, not going fixed, not going variable, being very smart and very careful and learning from history. That was 2020 and 2021, 2022. Now, if I could, it's just my opinion. I'll share with you what you do when there's icebergs on the horizon. Now, I would suggest to you that right now there's icebergs on the horizon. I'm not going to be like some of these commentators, the world's going to win, everything is over. I'm not saying that because it's not. You know, good times, bad times, you know, but people do split up. There's the winners and the losers, right, unfortunately, okay? These are, right now we have icebergs on the horizons. So here's what you have to start with. Do you have a job skill, a good job skill? Can you do plumbing? Can you do construction? Can you paint? Can you install cable? Uh, can you fix uh, cell phones? Can you learn how to do it? Can you go to George Brown for two years and actually get a skill that, you know, is a little more effective than, you know, gender studies or something? You know, do you have a spouse that you can work with? Do you have a family you can work with? Do you have low debt? Are you able not to make assumptions and to deal with scenarios, right? If things get bad in a way that will surprise you and you're prepared for it, can you learn a bit from history? And if you survive, things will get really good. Just when I jump ahead to 2032, 2033, you know what I think we're going to see after 2031, 32? What I suspect? What's that? The biggest growth in the stock market and in economics you've ever heard about. We're going to have a massive boom starting in about six or seven years. That's what I think. Because, but you got to remember um, when uh, Schwarzenegger decided to become a bodybuilder, he went through a lot of pain to get to be as good as he was, right? And when, uh, you know, Bruce Lee became the world's greatest fighter, he went through a lot of pain to get there. So the pain's coming up, but you just have to know how to deal with it. It's got to be good pain, like Schwarzenegger always says. It's got to be that good pain, not that bad pain, right? That's where we are. We're on, we're on the right-hand side. So now then I, 
I have some more theories here. Actually, let me go through these theories. Can I do it? Because what I'm doing is I'm setting the basis for addressing what you just talked about, right? Because I can't talk about what you want to hear about until we go through these ideas. Then we've got the language and the way of being, to use the terminology from EST, the Forum Landmark Corporation, the way of being. If you want to be prudent, you have a way of being, which leads to prudence. If you want to be imprudent, you have a way of being that doesn't lead to prudence. So here's the way of being, or of not being. There's something called adverse selection. Okay, it, These are common finance academic terms or whatever terms, right? You've got a buyer with less information, and you've got a buyer with less knowledge. You've got a seller with more information, you've got a seller with more knowledge. Right? That's adverse selection. The consumer is making a mistake. It's adverse. Let me give you an example. When you get your advice from the bank, and the bank is going to make money by selling you stuff, who do you think has more information, the bank or you? The bank. The bank. When you talk to a real estate broker who wants to sell your real estate, and you're going to buy something he's going to show you and tell you it's a good deal, who's got more information, you or the real estate broker? Should be the real estate broker. Yeah, he does have more information. You're right, more than you. And how about the mortgage broker? It's the same thing. So when times are good, it doesn't matter because everything's going up. You can make the dumbest mistake. So instead of making 100%, you made 8%. doesn't matter. But at times like this, when we're at the iceberg stage, um, that's, that's a risk. Now, survivorship bias, right? The bank, the mortgage broker, whatever, they're always going to tell you about the guys who did fine, right? The, 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 you know, this guy bought this, he did great. This guy bought it for me, he did great. Times were good in the 80s, that was great. I remember when I was a kid, I had an uncle who uh, never owned a house. He said, in the 1930s, he said, Sid, in America, 90% of the, 75, 80% of the people lost their homes to the banks. Not 7%, not 5%, 75%. He says, I'm never buying a house. It's the worst thing you could possibly do. You see, he's, he's got like, like uh, recency bias, right? He just thought the world was the way he experienced it. Just like anybody mm -hmm. from 1980 until now says when rates go down, prices go up. I, I, real estate's a great investment. They don't make any more land like the ad used to be with Hong Kong Bank. <laughs> Buy real estate. They're not making more land. Oh, yeah. Well, they weren't making land in the 1930s. How come it went down? Do you know how much, you know, these things happen, right? So, you know, you're biased in terms of what you recently saw. You're biased by, by looking at, it's like the stock market. The stock market's always going up. Sure, there's like 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 30 years ago, 25 of them weren't there. They're gone. Now there's 25 new ones. Sure, the index is going up. You're following the winners. You're not following the losers, right? So there's all these, then there's a lack of thinking, habitual thinking, right? You know, uh, what happened? Yes, my brother's a doctor, right? He says, you know, some guy comes in, he's got a heart attack or something worse happened. The guy says, I was great yesterday. What happened? He says, well, how many years have you been, been drinking, you know, two beers a day? How many years have you been eating cheeseburgers? How many years have you been not exercising? Well, you know, you're putting a drop of water in a cup and another drop and another drop. Finally, the cup was full and it happened, right? Just because yesterday you could put another drop in, 
you added another straw to the camel, the thing broke, right? Okay, so so what I'm saying, Carl, is that, well, that's a hard example. We're not going to do that one. But So what I'm saying is that to address the things you're talking about, that's what we should do. We, we should actually run through this in a, in a subsequent talk, and um, then we can start working through it. But you have to build those models, and you got to start with, Pick a town, pick a province, give me the age. Let's talk about the education, the kind of job they have, etc. My brother's a, a doctor, and he knows a lot of young doctors, okay? There are young doctors uh, making 300000 plus a year, and their spouse is an MD making three hundred, and they can't afford their mortgage. They're starting to feel poor, which probably doesn't surprise you, right? No, uh, no, because that doesn't mean they're financially literate. They might have a $3 million home and a, you know, $200,000 worth of car payments and everything else that goes with it. Right. So we've covered. A... So, so you so... brought up the bell curve chart there for a minute. And I yeah. thought that kind of goes back to my, my question and examples, right? Is like, if like, again, if someone who's netting $150,000, right now okay. in Toronto you think that they should wait well you haven't said this but based on what you're telling me they should kind of wait until they you know they can put 40% down or so on it's on a property if, if you're if you if you've got a whole if you've got a mortgage of five times your annual income interest plus principal five times your annual income you're starting to be okay So if you're making, uh, if you've got a seven a seven thousand mortgage, um, seven hundred over five is like is like one hundred and forty thousand, right? Uh, well, if you're making one hundred and forty thousand, uh, boy, you know, eat healthy, get your food cheap. Um, I, I have to work out if that's enough money. If, if five times, can somebody make it 140 carry a seven thousand dollar mortgage? I don't know because you, you've got taxes. It's got to be 140 net, so it's probably 200 thousand, right? 35 percent tax, probably 200 thousand. If you're making 200 thousand, you should be able to afford a, a seven thousand mortgage. I think we'd have to work it out, okay? But if the when interest rates were two percent, you have to fix it, and uh, you sure as heck have got to try to pay it down really, really as fast as possible. I, I got to work it out. I got to work it out. Right now, we're in an environment where it's highly unpredictable. Uh, two or three years ago, we we were talking. I I had suggested the rates were one and a half. That the Fed fund rate was going to four. Well, it went to a lot more than four. It went to five plus. Right? People probably let them in. Right now. Uh, the Fed fund rate's going down because I think things are slowing down. Uh, I'm not sure if mortgage rates are actually going to come down or not. I suspect they won't. So it's, it's so people are in a bit of a bind. So, you know, we'd have to run a scenario. What are you doing if you're in a specific situation right now? We have to do a scenario. Uh, yeah, because I see where you're going with the bell curve. So if you're on the if you're that couple right now and 
you have to save up and wait another three, three, four years. What's, you know, what could the potential house value be at that point? I don't think inflation is, is I don't think real inflation is going to be more than 10% a year for the next three years. I don't think home, I don't think homes will, will drop more than at, on the average 10% uh, over the next three years. If you can really save up a lot of money in the next three years, it's probably a good thing to do. Hmm. So, you know, we'd have to start running the scenarios, but right now, mortgage rates probably are not going down. Because when you have a mortgage, the mortgage is covering two things. Mortgage interest rates are covering two things. Here's what they're covering. Number one, they're covering the general interest rate level for five-year mortgages because of where the treasury bills are at, where the government is at. Well, government five-year rates are about 4.5% in Canada and the United States. I think it's around there. But when you're borrowing on a mortgage, the, uh, the credit spread, right? They're not going to treat you like you're the government. The credit spread is probably 3%. What's a five-year mortgage right now, more or less, in Canada? Uh, five and a half to 6.2. Six percent. Okay, your credit spread's only that's only one and a half percent. That's damn good. That's pretty good. Right? That's assuming you can get an A an A mortgage, right? Well, we we what we should do is run through all these scenarios, right? And we got to run through the areas. But uh, what? How much do you think the S and P's gone up in the last five years? Uh, the S and P. Uh, the S and P has gone up a fair bit. We're, we're at we're at a we're at a high right now, right? And it's probably going to go up even higher. Uh, so the S and P has has gone up quite a lot, but a lot of stocks are down fifty percent. <laughs> so when you ask me about the S and P, I've got a chart here. Um, oops. I'm going the wrong direction. I'm sorry. Let me just uh, move back here. Uh, let's see. There's the Hang Seng. There's the DAX. There's the Nikkei. There's the S&P. So, you know, the S&Ps are on almost 4,500. It got down in 2020 when the crash came. Down around 3,500. So the S&P has gone up a fair bit. It's back at a high. Um, I think the S&P is going to go up another 500 points, then it'll correct. Oh, it'll bounce off the 5,000 5, mark. It'll bounce down. Yeah. So the S&P is up 80% over the last five, uh, five years. Well, well, it fell. It collapsed. It, uh, I've got the S&P up on this chart. We're back to where we were two years ago. We collapsed from 4,800 down to 3,500 when um, COVID hit. Can you just explain for the audience what the S&P index is? Sure. The S&P is the average price of essentially the top 500 stocks in the United States. So if you don't want to be a stock picker. If you don't want to be a stock picker and you have a whole bunch of other criteria, which we can talk about in a separate session. 
the S&P is a good place to have some of your money for savings. Yes. But I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, hold off on my questions for a while, and I'm just gonna let you uh, rift off of your presentation. Okay. All right. So we've been. Let me. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's just sort of. What we'll do is we'll finish the background of where, when, how we got here, and how we can speculate in terms of where we're going. Right. And I think after that, we we probably finish the general stuff, and then. Probably uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll get to the, some of these specific models that, that you've, you've raised, which is a good thing, right? Okay, so let me just run through this uh, quickly. We know that there's a wealth discrepancy right now. It's quite massive. It's affecting probably most people that are listening in. And that's because the government has been printing tons of money and interest rates have been going down. And as the interest rates have gone down, the ability to save has declined dramatically. And the cost of assets has gone up dramatically. That causes poverty. If you can save money, and if the bank pays you 5% or 4%, you can save. But if you're saving money and the bank pays you 0%, you can't save. And if inflation is 5% or more, which it is, it's even worse. So that's what's been going on since 1980, even though people felt wealthier. Again, as I mentioned before, in the 1990s, because we were importing cheap stuff from Asia at one twentieth of what it would have cost to build it here, the inflation got hid, hidden, but the inflation got translated into hard assets, and that's why we're in the situation we're in right now. That's why the world looks the way it does in North America and Europe. That's why the conservatives and liberals are at each other's throats. That's why the streets aren't that safe in Toronto, even where I am right, right here on Yorkville Avenue. That's why it's very bizarre in San Francisco and in New York and Chicago where there's a, a mess because of all this stuff. It'll, it'll have to get fixed up. Now, if we look at money, this is interesting. There's too much to get into, but basically money in North America is composed of four things. Cash, bank deposits, deposits the gu- that the Fed puts into banks, and, and treasury bills, government debt. Okay, so in June 2020, in the United States, the total money in the economy was 40.5 trillion. Okay, which is like, I don't know, uh, 100,000 per man, woman and child. That's how much money there was in there. So if you can imagine everybody spending 100,000 a year, every baby, every child, everybody spending 100 G's, that's how much money was in there. They could spend that much cash a year and only touch those bills once. Three years later, the money supply was $57 trillion. Between 2020 and 2023, the money supply was up by, four, by uh, 17 over 40. That's 30%. How can the money supply increase by 30% in three years? It would have taken 50 years before. What, what happened, right? Um... Carl, I'll tell you, that tells you we're in a very dangerous time right now, right? That's like somebody going from smoking, you know, one pack a day for a year, and now he's smoking like three packs a day. What, what, what happened all of a sudden? That's not good, right? Now, if money 
increases that much, either CPI goes up that much or asset values go up that much. So let's look at the asset value. If a house costs $1 million, $1 million in 2020, when COVID was here, three years later, it's got to cost $1.4 million. So what happened was, Carl, $600,000 houses went up to 900000 right? Over that three-year period, right? Now you know why. Because Donald Trump and Joe Biden and my favorite man of all time, Justin Trudeau, increased the money supply by 30%. That's why houses were up by 30 40%. Notwithstanding the wonderful mayor we have in Toronto, who thinks the government should spend more money to make house prices go down, because last time when they spent more money, house prices went up. But this time, what the heck, it should go down, because, you know, I don't know what she's thinking. She's not thinking, really. But that's why house prices, that's why we're in the mess we're in right now. That's it right here. Right? I remember when uh, I came home from whatever I was doing, and Donald Trump was on television, and uh, on CNN, my wife was watching it, and he was saying that he had to shut down the world, which I thought was the, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say, but I, was, I wasn't clear to me that that really made sense. Donald Trump said, we're going we're gonna to do such and such and such and such. We're going to increase the deficit by $4 trillion. I said to my wife, what did he say? Uh, she's, I don't know. I, I said, I think he said $4 trillion. If it's $4 trillion, I said to her, it's over. The system's done. She said, what are you talking about? I said, you'll see. <laughs> Here we are. Okay. That guy there, his name is Neil Kardashian. Okay. He studied um, astrophysics, I think. I became aware of him in 2008. I was in the United States. I was actually doing some lobbying with the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, various things of a project I had down there. And when the whole system was in the middle of collapsing, I happened to be in Washington, talked to a bunch of senators and congressmen. I was explaining to them what was going on. Now, this dude was working for the Treasury Secretary, Paulson, Hank Paulson. I'm not sure if you remember his name. And he was his advisor. Okay? So over the years, he, he moved up in, the, uh, up in the Fed. They thought he was like a security agent because he sort of looked like a security agent. He's put a few pounds on, so not anymore, but he used to look like, like, a, like a real muscle man, like a SWAT guy. Anyway, when, uh, when COVID came in 2020, that was like 12 years after 2008, he's on television, and he thinks that the system's going to collapse, the financial system, because everyone's going to go to the ATM machine, and they're going to uh, pull money out, right? This is him on CNN, and this is what the representative of the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government was saying on television with that very peaceful look on his face. He said, and this this is all comes from TV, right? He said, your ATM is safe. Well, you know, when the government's telling your ATM is safe, you know there's something going on, right? <laughs> Whatever the government says, assume it's the opposite. Correct. <laughs> then he says, your banks are safe. Well, right away, you knew the banks weren't safe, right? Then he said, there's enough cash in the financial system, Right? And then he said, there's an infinite amount of cash in the Federal Reserve. That's what he actually said on television, right? Neil, Neil Kardashian. So when, when one of the senior guys at the Fed tells you there's an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve, let me ask you something. If I told you I had an infinite amount of supply of something, I have an infinite number of cars, I have an infinite number of 
cheeseburgers, infinite number of houses. I need to get rid of them. What will you pay me for? There's an infinite supply. What price will you offer me? I wouldn't pay anything. You're right. Zero. So he told the world, he gave him a clue as to what was going on, right? That was interesting. Now, there's a graph of the money supply, okay? This is all the money sloshing around since like 19, uh, let me put my glasses on here, because that those numbers are sort of, sort of small, 1960. The money supply started to take off around uh, 2000. That's about halfway across, right? Then in 2010, the money supply really took off. Remember the great financial crisis? Sort of like uh, the great hamburger company, the great financial crisis, the money. They really started pumping out money, right? And then that, you see where it goes vertical? That's COVID, right? So you knew we were gonna have these hassles right away, right? If, if, if you were aware of all this stuff, if you studied history and knew about economics, that's definitely Kelvin economics, but real economics, and finance, and what happened in 1620 and 1720, and what Henry V did, the Roman Empire, Chinese inflation, you know, back with Wang Mang around zero AD. Like, these things have happened so many times, it isn't funny. But money went vertical, and right now, they're trying to cut down the money supply, right? You see that little tiny blip at the top there? You can barely see it. That's what mm -hmm. they've been tightening it up. And that little tiny tightening has taken interest rates from zero to five or six percent. What do you think of that? Isn't that a miracle of modern medicine? Or, or I don't understand why it wasn't regulated prior to this. Like in 2010, when it started to kind of go, wow, who's in charge of stopping this and, and regulating this? I'll tell you exactly what happened. I'm not going to go back to 1450 because then you'll think, oh, you're sitting it was history. So let me take <laughs> you back to 1968, right? The hippies were big. Uh, the Beatles were big. Uh, Elvis was big. But there were protests and riots all over the place, the Vietnam War. And, and things weren't much fun in the late 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Then Jimmy Carter gets to be president. Everyone's feeling bad. And things, and you, then you get stagflation. You know, people aren't doing stuff. People are getting poor. There's big inflation. Um, and that all happened because Richard Nixon, in, in 1972, took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard. That's when it started. Right? They were fighting wars. Uh, the U.S. currency was falling. They, it was going to fall. They couldn't keep it up. They went off the gold standard. So they started pouring out money. Then it's 1980. Okay, I'm, I'm telling you how this happened, right? So 1980 is like, uh, you know, it starts to go up quite a bit. It's 1980. A, a guy becomes president. Everybody likes. He's a charming guy. He's an ex-actor. He makes everybody feel good. You recall who that person was? He became president. Ronald Reagan. All of a sudden, people are feeling good. And Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who's the prime minister, and this is what I'm telling you right now is actually, you've, you've got to listen to this because I'm telling you exactly how we got here. Okay, this is, and this will give you the gut instinct, right? So the 70s were bad. All the hippies were, were, were peed off and they didn't like the war. And, and, you know, Kennedy got shot in 63. That wasn't a good thing. And 
you know, so Reagan gets in there, he, he clears up the Iran hostage crisis, and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make everybody a capitalist. We're going to make sure everybody can have a house. Everybody's going to be rich, and everything will be great. And Margaret Thatcher in the UK did the same thing, and that's when the problem started. There's nothing wrong with everybody being a capitalist. Nothing wrong with that. But when you make him a capitalist by giving him all a million dollars, yeah, that's like saying I'm going to make everybody a doctor or a brain surgeon. How? I'm going to give them a certificate, like in The Wizard of Oz, right? Here's your certificate. You're a graduate university. Now you're a genius, right? Well, giving somebody a million bucks doesn't work. So the government started to guarantee loans. They get money made. They get these mortgages. They force banks to lend money to people who can never pay it back. That's what they did. That's when the money supply started to go up. So the government did it mm-hmm. because they thought you turn everybody because once they had assets and they had money, they'd become very responsible and they'd be happy and they'd get along well. Then you had <laughs> 1987. Do, do either of you know what happened in 1987 on the stock market? Crash. Yes, you had the biggest one-day crash ever recorded in the United States stock market. Well, I was at Merrill Lynch at the time. I had joined about three months before, and the market was falling. I was thinking, what's going on? You know, I, I had no idea what was going on. It was a crash. It was bigger than 1929, the first, but it, like it fell 20%. I remember the story that Alan Greenspan, the head of the Fed, got off the plane. He said, how's the market? And someone told him, well, it's down 502. The market started that day at like 2200. The sum says it's down 502. He thought it was down 5.02 points, right? Five points on, on 2000. He said, that's not bad. He said, no, 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 500 points. That's 25%. He said, oh, wow. Bro. At that time, and this is terrific, the government thought the entire system could collapse and go back into the Great Depression. They actually thought that, and they were right. They were right. So what did they do? That's when the money printing started. They pumped up the market. They tried to prop it up. They went to Merrill Lynch. They went to Bank of America. They went to all the banks and said, we're giving you all the money you want. Lend it all to your clients. Lend it to the mutual funds and buy these stocks and stop it. Stop it. So, of course, it stopped. That's what they did. Now, J.P. Morgan tried to do the same thing in 1907, but he used gold. He used real money. This was different because of Richard Nixon and World War II and Bretton Woods and all kinds of stuff. So that was 1987. Then you know what happened in 1992? There was something called a real estate crash and an SNL saving and loans crisis. Guess what they did? They put more money in the system. They pumped it up. And there's your supply going up in, in 1992, right? Then it was 1998, 1999. There's so much money in the system, so much speculation. Now you've got these assets going up in price. It's, and we're, we're importing cheap stuff from China and Africa and everywhere else, right? So we're keeping the price down. People are getting more and more stuff. But if you look at the wealth distribution, it's getting worse. It's getting worse because you're paying people not to be productive. You're stealing from the rich. Mm-hmm. The rich are buying the assets. They're getting richer. We went through this earlier. It's starting to make sense, right? Now it's 1998, 99. There's the Russian financial crisis, and there's something called long-term capital. 
whole bunch of geniuses with so-called Nobel Prizes in economics, which don't really exist, but that's, they, they pretend it does, and hedgers and stuff, they, the financial system almost collapsed again in 99. What do they do? They bail it out. There's your money going up. You can see what's happened over the 90s with Bill Clinton, right? Things are getting worse, right? Then you get Y2K. Does that even sound familiar as to what Y2K was? Yeah, the world was going to end. I remember that very clearly. I went so crazy that if I told you what I did at Y2K, you think I'm really nuts. <laughs> I was really prepared, let me tell you. Anyway, so um, guess what they do? They throw money into the banking system. They give everybody money. It gets even worse. What happens? The assets pump up. What happens? You get a stock market crash. NASDAQ, do you know how much NASDAQ fell in, in, uh, in around 2000? No. How much do you think it fell, Carl? NASDAQ, the stock index. What percentage? Uh, percentage, I'd say 70%. 90%. I was there. Wow. 90%. You see, these things can happen, right? Nortel was the biggest stock in Toronto Stock Exchange. It was like 15% of the index. Went to zero? Went to zero. <laughs> I remember when I, I was trading Nortel preferred shares. I was making a market that there were 500,000 a share. And I, uh, I was talking to, uh, to, to one of my clients a couple of years later. I said, well, I knew they were going to go down. He said, well, what do you mean you knew? I said, well, I had, I had secret information. He says, what do you mean? Well, I read the Globe and Mail. All I had to do was read the Globe. I could tell what was going on. It was obvious it was going to disappear. Because the head of Nortel, because he had to grow and compete with all these companies in the States, all these telecom companies, he'd go to Waterloo. He'd give, he'd give all the recent graduates 150000 a year. He'd hire their wives who were like, you know, fine arts graduates, give them one fifty, buy them houses. Well, you knew that wasn't going to last too long, right? So it crashed. NASDAQ fell. Anyway, that recovered. Then things keep going up. They're putting more money in the system. Then in 2008, something really amazing happened. The market is, the banks are crashing again. They go illiquid. The great financial crisis, right? Now, I remember talking to a congressman from Wyoming, two senators from Texas, and a bunch of other politicians, because I was doing a bunch of lobbying with the Republicans and the Democrats and the mayors and all these guys, whatever. So I was having a lot of fun. I was had a project in New Mexico. It was a potash project. And I remember talking to the politicians, and I heard the story many times. Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, <clears throat> when, when, stuff, when the market was, was crashing and the banks were about to go down, he went to the congressmen, he went to the senators, and he said, he says, we have to bail out the system. They said, what do you mean? He says, the system's about to crash. Like, if we don't bail it out now with TARP program, it was called, just like the, the BTFD program last year, Carl, that we talked about. Yeah. If we don't bail it out, it's gone. The country is over. They said, well, how can that be? He says, look, I can't explain it to you, but we got to approve $750 billion. $750 billion, that sounds like a lot of money, right? Well, now, now, we're, now we're talking $4 trillion, $5 trillion. They're spending a trillion a month right now, right? So you can see how it gets crazier and crazier and crazier, right? And then the head of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, Ph.D., who was a student of the Great Depression, says, oh, we got to bail it out or else it will crash. We can't have another depression. So they bail it out, right? 
And then we had something called uh, COVID. Have you heard of that? We, four trillion dollars. That's how we got here. Now, how did it happen? Now, I'm going to get back a little bit to Elliott Wave Theory. Are you with me so far? Can, can I continue? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So yep. I'll talk to you about Elliott Wave Theory. Elliott Wave Theory is, is a fantastic, uh, we should maybe talk a bit about it at some point, way of looking at stuff. But here's the bottom line. Over the course of history and financial history, every once in a while, bad stuff happens, right? Something goes wrong, right? Well, here's the story. The emperor, whether it's an oligarchy, a dictatorship, but God forbid a democracy, the, the emperors are always prepared to deal with the next problem, thinking it's the same as the last problem. Yeah. And what they think would have solved the last problem is what they do to solve the problem today. But here's the problem with, with, with that way of thinking. The problems are never the same they were last time. Mm -hmm. And the solution you think would have worked last time wasn't going to work, and it's not going to work now. So you're using the wrong solution to solve the wrong problem instead of the right solution to solve the actual problem. That's why the money supply keeps going up and up and up, because they think they're going to bail it out. They're going to prevent the Great Depression. And what they're doing as they do that is producing the great divide of the 50% at the bottom who can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. They get poorer and poorer, the hollowing out of the economy, the hollowing out of the middle class, what, what Joe Biden likes to call Bidenomics for some reason. And then the other people who are smart enough to figure it out, you know, they got the survival instinct. They're going to they're gonna make it to the next big boom, which is coming, right? That's what's going on. So, Carl, when we're talking about mortgages, we're talking about what people should do and whatever. It's part of this whole mess we're talking about. And we can, in these sessions, go back to, okay, how do you deal with it? I'm not going to be like some of these characters on YouTube and TikTok. The world's going to win. The world's not going to win. Maybe it'll end. It ain't going to win. But these are tough times, and you got to sell your way through it, right? Mm -hmm. And that, But... But if you don't understand the background of how we got here, Ashley, then how do you deal with it? Because it doesn't seem real. But if you study the history, we had the 87 crash, the 90 crash, the 92 crash, the 99 crash, the 2002 crash, the 2008 crash, the 2020 crash. How many crashes do you have to have? By the way, financial theorists will tell you you only have one crash every 150 years. We've had 87 crashes in 40 years. Mm, something wrong with that theory. <laughs> I think okay. it's really hard for a lot of people like the regular person like Sid you have so much information and I know we've yeah. spoke prior to going live so um, you did share with us that you read an immense amount of information you're a history buff you're able to look at past cycles and able to look at how the future is going to go kind of in a way because you know history repeats itself yeah. how would a normal person navigate this without just you know, so many people are just trying to keep their head above water right now that it's like they're just doing what they know, which is go to work, come home, pay their bills, you know, put off one bill for another bill and try and make ends meet, basically. Like, how do people even have confidence in, in this information to be able to navigate forward? That's a good question. Let me, let me uh, move up to uh, some other slides here. And by the way, just, just to show you the kind of stuff that can happen in recent history, 
Forget the Depression. That sounds like a long time ago in the 1890s. But here's Richard Nixon, not that long ago. Nixon mm-hmm. orders 90-day wage price freeze, asks tax cuts, new jobs, and broad plan, severs link between dollar and gold. We, we had like price controls, like a rationing in, in the 1970s. Like these things do happen, right? We've just yeah. been living in a la-la land for quite a while. Okay, so let me, let me move ahead. That's a good question. Sorry, I'm bombing through these slides here. And I think comfort is what La La Land is for a lot of people. They'd rather just not know if they don't have to. But I think what we're doing now is people have to know. People have to figure something out here. All right. These well, I think guys. that's, to be honest with you, Sid, I think your presentation for most people when they're, when they're like Ashley just described essentially is, well, you better stop scrolling TikTok watching sports, mm-hmm. uh, talking drama with your friends and relatives and stop drinking and start researching and learning about history and, and why and how things happen. I, I honestly think that's actually what it is because you can't offer an excuse to someone who doesn't put the work in. Well, one thing I'm glad about, we'll, we'll see what people think, what the feedback is like, is that we've been able to, so far, pretty quickly, between last week and this, or a couple of weeks ago and this week, set the background that, hey, there's stuff going on that you've got to be aware of. Yeah. And because we've had the interchange, we've actually covered most of it. Uh, whether or not people are absorbing the concept, I don't know. But here's what we know. Uh, society ain't going to end. America's going to be strong for a long time. No question about it. But these are tough times and things are about to get fixed up, right? Um, you know, Donald Trump is a populist, right? I don't know what Biden is, but, but Donald Trump is a populist. The last time we had a populist show up was like Theodore Roosevelt after the 1890s. The 1890s are worse than right now. Populist show up. What's a populist? Is a guy who's not really a Republican or a Democrat or, or a Canada liberal or whatever the opposite liberals are. What is the opposite liberals in the government? Canada. What, what's that party called? Is it the, used to be the progressive conservatives. Conservatives. Conservatives, right. So, you know, they're all fighting each other. So a, a populist is when somebody new shows up. Canada's so conservative, you don't get populist. Last time you got a populist, I think he got executed, William Lyon Mackenzie King or something like that. But in the States, you get a populist when times are tough. The only reason Trump is, is a populist, like Trump, you know, like he's not a very polite guy. He's not a pleasant guy. Um, his ideas, I like him uh, economically and politically, but I recognize he's not exactly, you know, a moral leader. But he's a populist because people know there's something wrong with, with the system. There's something wrong with the mm-hmm. traditional guys. So know something is wrong. Okay, so how do, you, how do you become aware of what's going on? Well, we're talking about financial stuff here. We're not talking about spiritual stuff, which I'm into quite a lot. You know, Napoleon Hill, Neville Goddard, the Old Testament. That underlies all the stuff. We're not talking about that. We, we could, but we're not, because then people will think, it's, what are you talking about? But let's talk about some very smart financial guys. These four guys we're looking at here really figured it out. And let me share with you two guys who really are very smart. A lot of people don't like the second guy George Soros, I don't mind him. And there's Warren Buffett, okay? So let me focus on Buffett. 
if you want to understand pure common sense conclusions about what to do, Warren Buffett, is so many, he's on so many YouTube videos, and his books he's written, there are books about him. He's the most common sense, rational, reasonable guy you could find. Anybody that starts to read Buffett and thinks about it and listens to his videos and thinks about it some more, and Charlie Munger, who passed away recently, I think that's all you need. Now, the other guys I sort of like, Simmons has made more money than anybody speculating on the stock market, and he invented algorithmic trading, him and 100 PhDs. He used to be head of the math department at the University of California, PhD, and he, he was a smart guy. He worked it out. He worked out stuff that worked recently. Livermore is my hero. He was the world's biggest speculator. He had a kill and short in the market in 1907, 1905, and 1929. But those guys are a little esoteric, right? Soros is a little esoteric, but he's got a phenomenal book called The Alchemy of Finance, but it's probably too esoteric for most people. Warren Buffett, right? Warren Buffett philosophically comes from the best of American common sense. And uh, he slowly built up his capital. He made probably 85% of his money past the age of 60. Past the age of 60. Very little money when he started, but he saved his money. He was very cautious. And there's something I wrote there, which is that he reads 500 pages of stuff a day. He reads at least two, three, four books a week. So if a guy like Warren Buffett reads two or three or four books a week, um, what does that tell you? Common sense guy, not a derivatives guy, not a hedging guy, not common sense. So if you follow Warren Buffett and if you read him really, really carefully and think about it, Within two years or three years, you're, you're basically a financial genius. Now i got to say something that's really scary, okay, really scary. I would say everything else on YouTube, except maybe our discussions, but that's just me saying it. Everything else on YouTube is dangerous. Everything on TikTok, everything on social media, every other book on wealth and accumulating capital ever is dangerous because it's all essentially so particularist, it's so specialized, it's not generally applicable and, com and real common sense. Everything else, you, you're gonna go wrong. And if you got a list of advice from banks and brokers and insurance companies and, real, and mortgage brokers, you're really in bad shape. Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. that's, where, that's where you start and that's probably for most people where you end. That is the best advice I can I can give. Hmm. Okay, so we've got a couple comments going on. Um, Casey has mentioned your, she really enjoys your down-to-earth uh, and understandable tone. Um, she's also stated that the world's economic situation is very discouraging. And it, do you think that there's actually hope to strategize for the regular Joe, or do we just buckle down and hold on? Okay. Um all right, that's a good chart, okay? So um, let, me, let me back up to an earlier chart, okay? 
because pic a picture is worth of okay here's a good picture okay let me uh all right those three pictures in the top and those three pictures in the bottom talk about the 1930s the 1940s and 1940s okay on the left hand side you've got the depression in america at the top left and below that you've got the depression in germany it was a lot worse in germany but there was a depression mm -hmm. in both places okay then world war ii happened now world war ii didn't happen just unrelated to the depression it was mm -hmm. completely related to the depression the americans had it a lot better than the germans at the time this these are the germans in the russian front before they froze to death okay then as you move forward to 1945 46 there's a difference between America and Germany at the time. America was okay. You actually had a house. You had one, two, three, four kids, two mm -hmm. wives. No, I'm just kidding. One wife and one <laughs> mother-in-law. <laughs> one wife and one mother-in-law. And it was okay. Now, if you were in Germany, uh, in Dresden, which got firebombed, you were dead. Everything was dead. And it yeah. was gone. Well, Germany's okay today, actually. But, but that's what happened. You want to be in the upper half, not the lower half, right? Mm -hmm. uh, another example I'll give is, now let me share, actually this is very interesting with you. Uh, China's got a big stock market, okay? First of all, let me give you the US stock market, okay? There's the US stock market. As you can see, it fell during COVID at the, at the very top. You see that V, right, went straight down? Yep. Then it went back yeah. up. Uh, I think we're going to go up even more. Then we're going to have a correction because nothing goes straight up or down. People will get depressed during the correction. And then it's going to take off for probably 50 years. That's what I really think. Right. It's a long story why I think that. Okay. So that's the S&P index. In the last uh, five years, it's up like 50%, right? Now, I already told Carlos, but I don't think I told you. So I'm going to ask you. China's a big economy, and Ray Dalio is worrying about competition from China and blah, 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 right? How much? Yeah. So the, the S&P index in the last two or three years is up. Actually, it's almost doubled in the last five years. How much do you think the, the China stock index has increased in the last five years compared to the U.S.? U.S. is up is almost double. I'd say probably five times. Five times higher? Yeah. All right. No. <laughs> There's the Hang Sang Index. It's gone from 32,000 okay. to uh, like uh, 20, 15,000. It's down 50%. Wow. Good old high growth China down 50%. Now, is that because, is that has a lot to do with COVID? COVID was part of it, but COVID's over there. It's way down. So let me. Is it. Is it because companies or countries want to uh, bring back manufacturing and what have you to their own countries? That's part of it. But let me share with you uh, two more slides, okay? And, and these tell you where I think things are going, right? And, and how things can go. I'm answering the question that, that the mm -hmm. person asked. There's the German index. Germany. It's not bad, but you can see it's sort of starting to lag go down right you see the german would that index? be a correction or no 
uh, well, put it like this. There's Germany, and there's the S&P, right? The S&P is strong as heck. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's Germany. It's, it's slagging a bit, right? So that's interesting. I'll, I'll get back to what that is and what it means about North America. And we're part of North America, so we're actually lucky. Now I'm going to show you Japan. How do you think Japan has been doing in the last five years? I'm asking Ashley. So we've got Germany is barely hanging in. America's doing good. China's a disaster. How do you think Japan's doing? Um, I'll say Japan's kind of even Steven. They're not crashing and they're not doing as good as the S&P. All right. Is Japan buddies with China or is Japan buddies with America? Uh, I'm not sure. I would say America. What do you think, uh, Carl? If there's a war between China and America, where's Japan sitting on that one? I mean, obviously, Japan is is much more closer to China, but I think Japan's an ally with with uh, America. Okay. There's the Japanese Nikkei Index. How's that looking? Like That's the American. Good. Mighty's going into Japan. They had that big crash in 1990, you know, and they virtually all the way back, right? Aren't they Aren't they in a liquidity trap or something? You see, this is where Stephen, where, where Stephanie Kelton has got a point. You see, there's no bond market in Japan. They don't trade anymore. There's some days where Japanese bonds don't even trade. The government owns it all. So Stephanie Kelton's got a point. As long as the politics is working for you, and as long as the geopolitics is working for you, that doesn't matter. The money's been spent, it's over. So what's happened in Japan is... There's no longer is any debt. The government owns it all. You know, it's like accounting. You've got these assets and liabilities. The assets is what you owe yourself. The liabilities is what you, the assets is what you own. And what you own is what you owe yourself. The liabilities is what you owe, but what you owe, you owe to yourself. So you smash it together, it's gone. That's the Japanese bond market. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and they got bad demographics, but America has bad demographics as well. But Chinese money is leaving China as fast as possible, go to America and Japan. And Japan's in good shape because they're basically the Western United States. You probably thought the Western United States was maybe Wyoming and Texas and Cheyenne and stuff like that, North Dakota. Or maybe you thought it was California. Maybe you thought it was Hawaii. Actually, the Western U.S. is actually Japan and the Philippines. (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt and McKinley organized that 100 years ago. Um, so Japan's okay as long as America's okay. And America's okay because they're the, the, the most meritocracy there is. Now, China's got a demographics problem. The population shrinking fast. That's a problem. And it's also not a, there's no freedom in China. See, if you have a better idea, let's say you're in America and you have a better idea. And your name is just to pick a random name, Elon Musk. And you start up four companies and you borrow money and you're successful. And then you, you know, you stick your finger at the president of the United States, call him a something negative like Donald Trump or Biden. They don't kill you, at least not so far, right? You're you're actually okay, right? That's America, right? Um, if you're in China and you start to stick your finger at the Jinping, 
You're dead. You, you might not last too long. <laughs> well, how aggressive, how eager to fix things up and do stuff and to survive does that make you? You're, you're pretty cautious, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not cautious, then you're going to be the next dictator if, 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 you, if you survive. But it's a, it takes 40 years to get there, right? So these countries which are not meritocracies, but they're bureaucracies and they're dictatorships are problematic. America's still good. Japan's working with America. There's a reason America supports Israel. And it's a similar kind of situation here. There's also a other perspective as well, but economics has a lot to do with it. And world power has a lot to do with it. And Ray Dalio has probably, you know, been a little too worried about China. And we've got these situations. They're all going to get fixed up. So the question is, where is it going to get fixed up the most? All you need is, you know, them not to doing bad to Trump, Trump to win. They'll fix the stuff up, then they'll get rid of them, and then it'll be okay again. By the way, when it comes to demographics, there's a reason all these Ill- illegal immigrants are coming into the United States. There's a reason that they're coming from South America. And there's a reason there's 10 million of them. And it's not by chance, okay? Not by chance. They have to fix up the demographic situation, right? Well, in the old days, if you had a demographic situation, when England had a demographic situation, or France had a demographic situation, Carl, what did they do? They exported people, and they took over things that became called colonies, right? Right now, what America's doing is it's reverse colonization. They're importing people, right? Now, why do people want to get imported? <laughs> Because why do why do you want to because you're not the birth rates down yeah so the importers like more people and the importees it's still way better than south america and central america and mexico they'd rather be there so that's why i'm pretty positive in america that's why i know they have to take interest interest rate interest rates are going to go up that's why i know inflation has to get fixed up that's why there might be more war to fix things up because you have to re-educate a whole bunch of people, which means you might have to have a draft so you get them re-educated. Basically, what the what the military is, is like community college. It's like going to Jordan Brown for two years. You know, big things are going to be happening, right? So what you want to do is keep on the right side of the curve that's going to make it all the way through. And with that kind of a background or that kind of a knowledge base, uh, that we've been talking about. Maybe we've covered enough. Maybe we can start getting more specific moving forward. If one is comfortable with those concepts, and it's it's a really good thing to read Buffett. Buffett, all Buffett ever says about all these concepts is you can bet on America. You can bet on America. And if, and if that's enough for you, then great. That's enough. You don't need to know all this stuff. But then you have to you know follow those, those common sense principles and not get lost in the negativism of what's happening. But the negativism is real. It is real. It's definitely a real thing. Illegal immigrants are real. The poverty is real. San Francisco is not a pleasant place. You can't walk around with a stepping on a pile of you-know-what. Seattle's not a pleasant place. Chicago and Detroit aren't pleasant places. New York's not as safe as it used to be. Miami ain't safe. Texas is is a lot better. But... It's going to work out okay because in the 1890s, like I said a number of times in this talk, it was way worse than it is right now. And uh, frankly, it's 
for a good chunk of time. It is, uh, you know, like the Depression. So you want to, you know, now it's better than it was in the Depression for the winners, for the people who can think like winners and study. Actually, Napoleon Hill, we've talked about it, and Neville Goddard. Get that applied practical spiritual stuff, that manifestation, that stuff, which I meant all that as well. If you can do that, you're actually going to be okay. But, but you can't, you can't, you can't cover a uh, eight hundred thousand dollar mortgage. <laughs> I mean, well, that's uh, I think that's a really uh, important thing to talk about, Sid, because yeah. this is where we're at in southern Ontario. Anyways, it's where people are at. They can't afford the, they can't afford the house, but the rent is three you know three grand, thirty five hundred bucks, right? So what do you do if you're saying you you don't want to if you don't want to put if you don't want to hold your money in cash because cash is worthless, and the first thing you'd buy is a house, but you got to put a mortgage on it, right? Does it make sense? We'll tell you what we should do if if, if you think in terms of the general stuff that we've done enough those last two sessions and that's been covered for the next session we can actually start to uh, work through you know there's various people that have these financial plans and these talks we'll work through a real financial plan how you actually work through it how you run the scenarios we'll actually do that yeah it'd be nice if i could get someone uh friends uh, a friend who like one comes to mind that's constantly constantly uh working with spreadsheets and stuff like that to, to try to figure out if he actually should buy a house or if he should if he should rent and invest his money so if he if he would let us be a good um experiment or exercise that would be that would be great so here's what i would suggest uh, before we do uh, another one of these uh these things these situations uh we should um uh work through a model right and if, if there's some listeners who've got a model I'm happy to do it because I find it very interesting. Uh, we should, um, you know, work through a real practical model and show the scenarios and look at look at the things to do and how to structure it in a specific situation. Yeah, that sounds good. I think, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think that anyone watching, even if they want to shoot us a message in private, because I know a lot of people don't necessarily want their financial business you know, out in public, then we could do that. We could use the information that we gather from someone. Yeah. But you got to keep in mind, Sid, I mean, you know, and, and, and to be practical, right? Because I, I know when you start talking about the models that you should do, you're looking for an extreme amount of information, which I understand. I totally understand. But we're not going to be able to get that amount of information from people, right? So, you know, maybe income, uh, how much the house would be, how much the mortgage would be, uh, what rate could they get? What's their net? You know, uh, you know, what do they net? How much, if, what do they think they're going to make in two years from now, three years from now, we can get stuff like that. Are there friends and family here? But you know, there, we can only get so much information to, to do the exercises, right? So keep, keep that in mind, but that's where the average person is right now. They're hurting. They don't have disposable income. A lot of people. And as you can see from your bell curve there, um, you know, a lot of people are going to fall very, very far, far behind. So if you're an average person and you don't have a lot of disposable income and you're, you know, we'll just stick to Ash and I's age, you're around the age of 40. What do you do to not fall behind? That's really why people are going to pay attention to, to, to this, series that we're doing right now 
Well, it's, it's, it's real simple. You either sell the asset and, and deal with it, or you rent out part of it, you live in it, uh, or you borrow money from parents. You know, like, there's only so many things you can do, right? But you got to get really realistic. And at the same time, once you're realistic, you can be positive in a positive way because now you know where you're going, etc. Yeah. I don't think rates are going to 10%. But I don't think they're going to four percent. I think they're going to be between five and eight percent mortgage rates. Yeah, and you also think that house prices probably will go up. So that's a scary thing, right? It depends where you're at. But I think that uh, uh, prices are probably going to. You you want to run two scenarios? What if they're stable? And then what if they fall 15%? That's what you want to run. What's the bank going to do? And what are your options with banks? What are your options with mortgage brokers? All kinds of stuff. You got to be creative. You know, um, if I look at, uh, you know, my situation, I probably had uh, five careers. Started as a chemist. Then I became a chartered accountant. Then I became an investment banker. Then I moved into institutional sales. Then I became an institutional trader. Then I became a research analyst. Then I quit and became a uh, a junior stock market promoter, and I built up companies. And here I am, you know, doing what I do now. Where'd you make the most amount of your money? Doing what? The last one? Uh, I made most of my money between 2002 and 2016, starting and then selling five different companies. So being the promoter? Being the uh, creator of an idea, raising the capital, taking up to a certain point, and selling it. So yeah, being the promoter. Yeah. Now, I don't want to ask your age, Sid, because I think that that's rude to do, but you mentioned that uh, Warren Buffett made the most most of his money after he was 60. Yep. Um, Is that the same for you? Uh, After 50. Yeah. I managed to well make done. a lot and spend most of it before 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we that comes with age, right? Wisdom comes with age. That's right. That's pretty normal. Right. Right. But, uh, uh, we do have someone that's asked along the real estate question, yeah. because you seem pretty bullish on the real estate. It Would that, would you say in a nutshell, now I know there's a lot of factors that come into this because we've discussed many different scenarios that could take place and different things that um, affect it, but would real estate generally be a surefire way to for security for the average person? Yes, with the following proviso: if you're buying stocks compared to okay, if you're buying stocks compared to a business or real estate, when you buy a stock, you're 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 spending or, or an index. The the valuation or the price is about three times what it should be compared to real estate or compared to businesses. And that's because stocks are liquid, um, and that, which is okay. The other, pro- I, you can buy and sell in two minutes, right? Now, mm-hmm. the other thing about a stock is that you have zero knowledge of what's really going on, which means you have to be awfully smart. And even if it's an index fund, you have to really understand the risk there. So that takes a great deal of sophistication, but you're never going to really know what's going on with the companies. It's impossible. Matter of fact, I'll say something funny. I, I've noticed because I've been the president of a bunch of companies. 
if you take a company like IBM or Google or some company in Canada, Transalta or, or TD Bank, you're lucky if even one person at the company knows what's going on. Hopefully it's the president. Sometimes nobody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like companies are strange beasts, right? It's like, it's like a big amoeba. They just sort of survive. Now, when you're in real estate, that's a completely different ballgame. You're now managing it. You're, uh, you know, I got my real estate. I, I, I put Bosch cleaners in there and Bosch dryers, and they were like $5,000. And I, you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, insurance. You're dealing with, with uh, you know, the mayor of Toronto, and you're dealing with STRs and long-term leases, and you can't get rid of people. And then you got to do credit checks. You're running a business. You have, you have to know what you're doing. And if you have the sophistication to manage it yourself properly, yes, real estate's fantastic because it's a business. And you're dealing with people, and it's good for your personality, and it's really good. So owning a stock versus owning real estate and operating it is a completely different experience. It's like running a business. So, yes, I would say that for 95% of people, real estate is a great place to be. But you want to, you know, if you've got a regular job, you've got to spend probably a good eight, nine hours a week on it, and, and you've got to watch who you're renting it to. You have to get along properly with people, and you have to be able to manage mm-hmm. the risk. And then, then you have to decide there's the two extremes. You sort of do real estate the way I do, where I like really nice floors and nice wood. I don't like to go cheap. Or you go into the... The slum landlord business, right? You know, I, I've seen some of these houses here, you know, for like 1.2, 1.3 money. I walk in, I said, my God, how can anyone live in those places, right? So if mm-hmm. I'm going to get a place that's going to, in Toronto, it's, it's got to be three and a half million bucks because I just can't handle. My daughter's a real estate expert. She's in, uh, you know, she's, you know, she's just, she thinks I'm crazy. Oh, dad, you go overboard with this and that. It's all right, fine. You know, I used to tell her what to do. Now she tells me what to do. Um, so you have to know yourself, what kind of real estate, where's it going to be? Um, for most people, it should be in an area, you know, really well, right? You get real estate in the area, you don't know. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you can handle all those skills, you know, and all, if you're up for it, then I would say, uh, we're not headed for the great depression where real estate falls 95%. We're not headed for deflation. We're going to continue to have inflation, and what the governments are going to have to do is get it down at two or two percent or three percent. That's going to be very, very hard, but it'll happen because it can't be at these rates we have right now. So mm-hmm. you know it's going to be good. Now, as far as stocks are concerned, man, you know I was a freaking stock market guy since 1987. I've only really started to understand it frankly, in the last three or four years as I've become an independent investor investing in the S&P. When I was starting public companies and taking them public or when I was sort of trading professionally, I really didn't know what I was doing, believe it or not, right? And, and I'm not completely stupid. And it's it's taken me years and years and years and years to figure it out. I'm not surprised Warren Buffett says he reads 500 pages a day. I think he's not making it up. It's very complicated. And in the old days, you could be a value investor. Even Warren Buffett can't be a value investor right now. These stocks are so inflated right now. It isn't funny. Yeah, I know. A lot of them are trading at 20, 30 times earnings, which 
in the private sector, right? It would never happen. Nobody would buy a business I'll at 20 you, or 30. They're not trading at 30 times earnings. They're trading at 300 times earnings. <laughs> the quality of earnings, the quality of earnings has deteriorated by 10 times compared to what it used to yeah. be. Right. Yeah, and that's why, like, when you listen to a lot of uh, analysts talking about stocks and overvalued, the whole thing is detached, right? Like, when you say, when you when you and I have had chats about how real inflation is around ten percent, and you got to own assets, okay, real estate's an asset, stocks an asset. That's one of the reasons why these valuations are so high. Plus, behind me, yeah, right. There's probably I don't know five hundred books there. There's there's two hundred books of mathematics, and there's two hundred books on theory of stocks <laughs> that's what those books are back there okay 200 in math 200 in stocks and then a bunch of history right stocks are at, at the end of the day you know what stocks are stocks are an index of the happiness level of the society you're in stocks are an index of the happiness level of the society you're in because if the stock market went private all of a sudden it would probably fall by 90% yes the stock market was private, probably fall 90%, right? So what you're buying is optimism. And the fact that the Nikkei index is up, the U.S. index is up, the Chinese index is down 50%, the DAX is, the DAX is hanging in that Germany. What's that telling you? Stocks are the forecast of what's happening, what's going to happen in the world, not the forecast of what's happening now. You know what the U.S. stocks are telling me? Telling me Trump's going to win the election. Because if Biden won the election, the stocks wouldn't be up, believe me. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying Trump's a great guy, and I'm not saying Biden's a bad guy. He may have some issues, but, but um, you know, uh, I'm optimistic about America. Real estate's good for most people because it, it turns you into a mature adult business person, right? And, and there's... Uh, takes good common sense but you don't need to be like a genius if you're in the stock market and you're pl and you're, you're playing it safe man you got to really be a student even if you're buying an index you know we've been benefiting from index funds which have been hanging around since uh 1979 okay I'm not going to bore you with all the theories of index funds and fractals and the Fisher markets hypothesis and all this stuff but you know these index funds by the way most stocks you, sh you should know when when 30 percent of the world of north america sorry when 10 percent of north america 10 percent of north america right now probably owns 80 percent of the stock market 65 percent of the stock market right now is algorithmic trading by the time this correction is over There'll be very few people actually owning stocks except rich people, right? There, there's a there's an accumulation there's an accumulation going on right now. Mm -hmm. We've actually been in a bear market, Carl. For how long do you think we've been in a bear market? Two and a half years. Uh, uh, I don't know. It was getting pretty. It was getting pretty frothy in 2019, but um, I don't know. Three years. I'll tell you how long we've been in a bear market. We've been in a bear market since 2000. How do you like that? And I'm going to show you an indication of that, assuming it's still in these slides. Uh, let's see here. I'll tell you why we've been in a bear market, okay? Ah, oh, yes, here we go. Okay, now, 
A bear market doesn't mean that the price of the stocks are going down necessarily. But what a bear market means is the dominant trend of a stock market is down, okay? Like the, the, strong, the strong trends are down. So if you look at, this is the inflation adjusted Dow Jones. It's not as much as the, and it's not too good. But if you look at 2000, you see that decline in the year 2000? Yep. Okay. Yep. And when you look at 2009, you see that decline pushing down in 2009? Well, mm-hmm. I can't tell exactly where it is. But... Well, you, you see that gray line on the right where I've yeah. like February, February 2000, 18,311, right? You notice when that stock market falls, it really falls. And when it goes up, it's going up at a certain rate, right? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. That rate it's going up on is inflation and the money supply. When it falls, that's really what's underlying the stocks in North America. Yeah. That's why we've been in a bear market, but it's been covered up by, by money supply. Money supply. And that is why, and this is actually good to know, this is why 1% of the population owns $37 trillion. Most of it's in stocks, and the top 20% owns $70 trillion. That's why everybody else hasn't got stocks. They got a bet because they're getting squeezed out by the wealthy who mm-hmm. understand all this, right? So we've been in a bear market for a long time. When this is all over, the bear market will be will, will be over. And I'll tell you who started the bear market. You see this nice little guy in the bottom left-hand side there? You recognize yeah. that face? Richard Nixon. He started it. Gold standard. Yeah. And I'll tell you who started it even before then. The guy above him. Do you know who that is? Mm, Theodore no. Roosevelt. With the New Deal. Right? This was the New Deal. Socialism. Yeah. Now I sound like one of our friends, right? But but it's about to get fixed up. It's about to get fixed up. It's it's matured. Uh, we we had you know microcomputers, we had chips, we had industrialization. Now we've got AI. We have all these things, and that's good. And that produces the ability for more production. But what the um, money supply situation has done is it's caused this divergence of the wealthy and the poor. And even if you have all kinds of goods, if people start killing each other because they hate each other and have revolutions, well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right? That's what is happening in the States. That's, that's, you know, AOC and, you know, Chuck Schumer and the senators. Like, why are they shouting at each other? Like, like, what's going on? What are they all mad about? They can't both be right. You know, he's evil. He's evil. Right? Hillary Clinton, half America is evil. Right? mega guys those guys are evil like like it's impossible right they're all basically the same people it's the same culture right mm-hmm. so we know this has to get fixed up and it's this inherent unhappiness that it's much easier instead of looking at the mirror at the person who's really causing you to be unhappy the person in the mirror it's easier to look at the other guy and say he's causing the problems right it's, mm-hmm. it's the blm that's causing the problem it's white racism that's causing the problem it's the ukrainians it's the russians you know, it's us. We get the yeah. governments we deserve, like Pogo said, right? He said, so, yeah. how does it make you feel if I say that 95, 99 percent, 
90 plus percent of the population do not care for what we're talking about right now. How does that make you feel? Well, uh, can I give you the two minute answer? Yep. The earth uh, is a, um, well, I got two answers. I'll start with the first one, which I made up. And then I'll start with the uh, Hitchhiker's <laughs> Galaxy answer. You know, Doug Adam, whatever his name was, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Here's my answer. The earth is a junior kindergarten. Mm -hmm. We're all in JK, right? So if you're a JK teacher, you don't expect 99% of the class to be mature, quiet, respectful, wise people. You're expecting it to be a jungle, right? Susie stole my dress. Billy cooked my lunch. John punched me, right? It's raining outside. I don't want to go have recess. Like, it's junior kindergarten. We're, we're, in, we're in a school. The earth is a school. And our souls are being trained here. And that's what it is. So that's where we are, right? We're, we're in a school. It's JK. We're not even in grade one yet. So therefore, so, <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Now, thank so you. That's There's a teacher in the class. Yeah. Well, and that's why most of the people that uh, I was talking about doing an exercise for are in the place that they're in. Right. I think that's a good spot to uh, end today's session. We've uh, been going two hours and 40 minutes. It's okay. uh, 9.40. Ashley, any um, final things from you? I do. Um, because we're going to kick this off again in two weeks' time, Sid, uh, we had someone comment, Carolyn Thompson said, this is a lot of knowledge shared. Can you point me in the direction of where to start doing my own research? Specific books that you would recommend to begin with, possibly. Um, and I think that that's kind of like if you want to give like a little bit of a homework assignment, Sid, to anyone that's really paying attention, that has a desire to grow with this, to evolve. Um, I think that that's maybe how we could end it off. Yeah, I think. Let me think about the specifics, but here's what I would say. Uh, start with, I would start and stick with, I wouldn't go anywhere else. I would start to stick with any videos on YouTube of Warren Buffett. And I would go to Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett's videos. Now you can also go to his website, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, which is the plainest, dullest website you can ever find. And every year he writes an essay uh, for his shareholders, but they're, they're pretty complicated. Warren Buffett. And and after okay. those videos, if you're a reader, there's books about him. I'll put together a list, but Warren Buffett's the guy. Um, and I'd leave it at Warren Buffett. I, I know what the second book is, but I don't want to mention it yet. No, I think that's good. Um, we had spoken yesterday and I actually ordered, as you spoke about it, The Richest Man in Babylon. So I'm going to start my own research and oh, my own what? due diligence. That is, <laughs> that is the best. Yeah. Way thought, to save know, a we're all responsible, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to end it right there. Sid, final word from you, my friend. And uh, we look forward to seeing everybody in a couple of weeks. Final world word is uh, the world is the reflection of yourself. That's all it is. All it ever has been, all it ever will be. It's a reflection of who you are. You change your vision of yourself, you change the world. 
and it doesn't take much more than two or three years and you're and it's a new world i can thank you so much yeah I, that resonates a lot with me it brings me back to a certain place i was at in my life probably 10 years ago um so yeah thank you very much for doing this sid you're my favorite person uh and uh ash thanks for joining and look forward to seeing everybody in a, in a couple of uh, weeks okay awesome thanks sid <laughs>